personally, I would just say just do more sisters. I should work on the phrasing on that. Uh, mm. yeah, that sounded about right. He, he means add more sisters add to more battles sis- yeah. as opposed to sisters of silence, yeah. which get no love. Yeah, no sisters. No, sisters of silence are just bad, and it's unfortunate. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that takes a look at everything that's going on and then figures out how we can mess it up. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And uh, today we are originally going to talk about the most recent two Psychic Awakening books because uh, Ritual of the Damned is now out and uh, Greater Good is now up for pre-order and we have a preview copy of that. But partially because we only play like a couple of the factions in these books and so it's hard to really give a good in-depth review without more research and and such i didn't want to necessarily go kind of half half cocked on that so instead we'll go half cocked on another topic which is the uh the state of the game kind of post lvo because in the wake of lvo and of marines versus marines being the final and and everything else there's been a kind of a groundswell of interest in change to how competitive play is handled. Now, if you are mostly a casual player, uh, this may not apply to you, but there are some things that we're going to be talking about that might be coming down the pipe that you may want to pay attention to, so don't write it off entirely. But we're just going to kind of look at where the game is, where the game might be going, and maybe talk about some of the suggestions that people have been making and kind of give our opinions on it. Uh, because it's our podcast and we can give opinions on things because that's kind of what we do. Uh, <laughs> but first, as always, news, new releases, your listener mail, hobby progress, and then, of course, at the end of the show, the morale phase. So uh, starting off with news and new releases, as I said, uh, Ritual of the Damned is out, along with the new uh, Dark Angels uh, Primaris Lieutenant. Yeah. Or is he a captain? He might be a captain. I think. I, I believe I, he's a captain. Okay. Yeah. Captain Lazarus, right? Yeah, okay. I believe so. I, I assume everything's a lieutenant at this point until they say otherwise. Uh, lieutenant? Lieutenant. Well, it's because my... we want to make the whole <laughs> okay. army of that. He's Master Lazarus. He is neither a Ooh. captain nor a lieutenant. He's a master lieutenant. No, no, he's, well. <laughs> is he a chief? Uh, he is not a master chief. However, one thing he is not is pointed. Right. <laughs> they did not print a point value for him in the book. Either that was an oversight or on purpose. Yes. <laughs> yes, because under named character, like they printed points for everything else that they added, and they actually updated the points for everything in the book, except for him. They pre- Yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, we have no idea how much he actually costs. There is, however, there is an HQ choice listed as a generic master, so mm-hmm. maybe that's how much he costs plus war gear, but it's very unclear. Yeah, so I mean, he has a, uh, and I I don't have the model, so I I can't confirm this, but I'm assuming that they just have a data sheet in the uh, in the package in the in the model with them. Yeah, uh, and he can, he so he's Master Lazarus and can alternately uh, be assembled to make a Primaris Captain for the Dark Angels. Okay, so, so all right, multi kit. So, <laughs> so okay, sort so of. I guess you could kind of assume Master Captain points, maybe, but yeah, it's something that needs to be FAQ'd. Yeah. 
However, uh, at least Grey Knights and uh, Thousand Suns do not have any of those issues. They had no new models introduced, but they also get all their points updated as well. I'm assuming the point... I haven't looked at the points closely. I'm assuming they're very close, if not identical, to what was in Chapter Proof 2019. I believe so. I have not gone over the points either. You know, they have gotten updated. Uh, obviously, they got the new uh, Masters of the Warp ability, which actually gives them some pretty nifty, like, army-wide buffs. But you do have to have your entire army as Grey Knights to get it. Yeah. Which, you know, it again, it's encouraging that, it, you know, it's the whole encouraging mono-build armies, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of remind me of, of Canticles. Yeah. it's Like, you, you pick one and that's that's the one that you're going to use for the game and then you use a psychic power to swap between them during the game if you decide you need to so yeah so they've got you know some nice army wide buffs they've got some decent stratagems yeah yeah again this is like i'm i'm reading through these and and some of them just seem familiar, and I'm like, they didn't already have these? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like they should have. <laughs> yeah. Wait, Grey Knights were missing stuff? I, I, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, and going back to uh, Dark Angels, they do get their, uh, you know, they get updated with the full Primaris and Combat Doctrines treatment, just as, as everyone expected. And uh, their super doctrine is in the Devastator, is Devastator doctrine, so it's in in play from the beginning of the game, and it is uh, all their heavy and rapid fire weapons gain six inches of range, and all their assault and pistol weapons get three inches of extra range in the first, first doctrinal set, which uh, combos nicely with uh, Grim Resolve, their, their uh, army-wide chapter ability. Or you know they're all their, well. It's a they're basically their chapter tactic, which is uh, reroll hit rolls of one for attacks made with ranged weapons by models in this unit, so long as the unit did not move this turn. Mm-hmm. So both in Overwatch, but also because you don't count as moving when you fire Overwatch because you didn't move that mm-hmm. turn. But also the extra range means if they can get start in a good position, they don't have to move to necessarily have you in range. And you don't have to have a castle. You can just kind of spread people out. Right. Although I think the Azrael Brick is still a better option. Probably more <laughs> defensive, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they also get a num- you know, they get a lot of the stratagems that standard Marines have, and they get a, a number of uh, Ravenwing and Deathwing specific stratagems, and including one called uh, Combined Assault, which is really nice. It basically gives you a teleport homer ability where um, whenever you set up a Deathwing unit from Deep Strike, uh, you can set them up anywhere within six inches of a Ravenwing unit, as long as they're six inches outside of uh, of an enemy unit, which puts you in, in prime easy charge. Yeah. yeah. No, I really like that. And that plays into how they're supposed to play in the fluff is the bikes get there. Find the, a guy. And find then- a guy. The Deep Strikers come in. <laughs> say hi. Yep. So, uh, again, armies that play the, the way the fluff would want them to play is good and uh so hopefully that'll be a good set of changes and then a thousand suns they get updated and also all these armies get updated to have like the new marine abilities so like gray knights have shock assault and bolter discipline same with uh dark angels and then thousand suns get their chaos equivalents hateful assault malicious volleys which their bolters being inferno bolters that makes them even scarier because the ap3 ap minus three uh bolters 
<laughs> terrifying. <laughs> and then they get nine, like, sub-legions. So, like, each detachment, you get to pick what cult it belongs to. And the cult gives you, gives every psyker in that uh, detachment, except for named ones. Like, it can't, well, except for cultists, Zangors. So, like, Zangor shamans don't get it. And named characters like Armon or Magnus won't get one. But everybody else, so like your exalted sorcerers and your aspiring sorcerers and such, uh, will get a a free psychic power. They get access to a warlord trait and they get access to a relic. And it's a different one for each cult. So, for example, Cult of Prophecy gets a psychic power divine the future. Uh, when the war, uh, warp charge six, if manifested, roll one d6, set it aside until the start of your next psychic phase. You can use that die roll to replace a single die roll rolled for hit roll, wound roll, Advanced roll, charge roll, psychic test, deny the witch test, or morale test for a uh, cult of prophecy unit. So basically, it gives you a, a miracle die from Sisters of Battle. Nice. Yeah, and and there basically there's like there's cult of time lets you bring a, a model back with at uh, full wounds, and if you roll cast it on a nine or higher, D three destroyed un- models from a unit back. So you can like keep bringing back your uh, rubric marines or your terminators. <laughs> Uh, you know, cult of mutation, cult of scheming, cult of magic, ah, knowledge, change, duplicity, and manipulation. They they all have their own. I mean, th- this feels like craft worlds or chapters or seps. I yeah, mean, it feels like mm-hmm. this is turning this instead of being a faction of chaos into its own big My, fact. Yeah, right, right. And I'm wondering if whenever they get around to doing Death Guard, if they're going to get kind of the same treatment. I would guess uh, they would. That'd be I'd, nice because they like they talk about like there's like the seven different like cohorts of. Oh. Um, Death Guard, like, you know, devoted so to... So Slanesh would get six. Yeah. Except, well, Slanesh doesn't get any because they are just rolled in with Chaos Space Marines. They don't get... For their- now. For now. <laughs> <laughs> they might have a book at the end of this. Nah, I, I doubt it. Because <laughs> Corn's not going to get one either. <laughs> yeah. Corn had its day in the sun. And Did then- they? KDK. Sorry, yeah, you had, you, had a, you had your own codex for a little while, and, and you were very happy with it. Yeah, but not anymore. Anyway, yeah, go see, on. Sorry. That's why you can't have nice things that get taken away. <laughs> uh, and then Greater Good is up for pre-order. And uh, it is uh, Tau, Imperial Guard, and Gene Stealer Cults. Uh, again, I can't really speak to the Imperial Guard portion at all. I'm assuming it's okay. Because we don't play Guard. Everyone knows that apparently we we keep getting told we hate Guard. I don't think we do, but apparently we do. So... I'll I'll say this. There's some really cool stuff for like the Tempesta Scions that they've listed, um, including like basically a little uh, legion or like company tactic that they have. Um, and like one of them allows them to like basically get like AP minus three uh, hotshot las guns and stuff. And it's some of that stuff's pretty awesome. Yeah. I don't know exactly how, you know, how good it is, but just from the previews, it looked like there was some pretty nasty stuff in there. Yeah, the Militarum Tempestus basically getting their mini f- codex back that they used to have mm-hmm. is is kind of fun. And then, uh, yeah, there's uh, one of the other things Guard does get is tank aces. Instead of taking a Warlord trait, you can uh, make one of your vehicles into a tank ace, as long as it's not Brood Brothers, because that would be wrong. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, basically, it's like you spend a command point to get make them into a tank ace, and then you pick, based on what kind of vehicle it is, they get a unit upgrade. Uh, so, you know, it just, like, like if you if it's a Lehman Russ, then here's this list of, like, six or seven abilities. If it's a 
bat if it's like an artillery pick one of these if it's uh if it's titanic so you pick something or like you so you pick a bane blade here's something mm-hmm. you know here's a list of three you can take so yeah that's kind of cool for like guard players who want to play you know less you know less infantry and more tanky well i think it was back in what seventh edition where they actually had like the tank commander rules and like a separate warlord trait table for tank commanders which I always thought was a really cool way of doing that. So you could you could actually take like a full mechanized list. Uh, and then as far as like uh, the the Tau, they got nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> actually, they got quite a bit. So they, we get a new Shadow Sun, who also does not have a point total, but is not the same as her old one. So you can't really compare because, like for example, the old one could choose not to take drones to be cheaper. Uh, this one just comes with the drones automatically, but they're different drones. So even that doesn't quite work right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, her big thing now is she's got, uh, I mean, her, her stat line is pretty much the same, but she's got uh, different, she's got more weapons attached and she, she's got an option on which fusion blasters she wants to take, which she's got a cup. She can now take uh, dispersed fusion blasters, which instead of being, Strength 8 melt-a-guns. There's strength 7 melt-a-guns that do D3 damage instead of D6, but they're also assault 2. So, like, mathematically, it actually works out to be better against infantry, which, I mean, which is what you're probably going to put her up against anyway. And then she also comes with, like, a missile pod and a pistol. Yeah. No, it's cool to give her some more options. Yeah. Make her make her more of a, a viable choice. <laughs> and she can also be taken with any set... Now, although she still has Tau Sept, so any abilities that she has, like Master of War, which is where you can declare like Monka or Kalyan, still trigger off Tau Sept, so they still won't spread over, but you can include her in any army. Uh, but she also can't ever get a Septenant unless it is the Tau Sept. Like the rest of your army has sure. to, the rest of your detachment still has to be Tau Sept to get coordinated fire arcs, but at least she can still get it. She doesn't interrupt the rest of your army from getting it, but I really don't see I mean, Tau Sept is still best Sept, although Farsight Enclaves might give it a, a run for its money now. Uh, but yeah, again, you can build build your own Sept. Uh, they've got a, an ability similar to what uh, Tyranids had, where you could choose like not to take a Warlord trait to take like upgrade this unit over here. Yeah, they can instead like choose not to take a Relic, which is fine because the Tau Relics are okay. Uh, to mm-hmm. upgrade a like upgrade a different unit with a, a like a kind of like a not relic for characters, which some of them are are pretty decent. In other words, giving like a unit a signature system. Yeah, type ex- thing. yeah, exactly. Uh, more stratagems, and then uh, the eight got updated. Uh, not really a whole lot of change to the eight. They are still functionally identical, but there were a couple of small tweaks I noticed that I think like I was looking. I got pointed to the uh, Goonhammer review of the book, and I was reading that yesterday, and I was like, they, they just kind of, like, glance over the eight, and like, yeah, it's still not a really competitive choice. You know, because Goonhammer's focused on competitive play. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, still not a competitive choice. I'm not going to disagree with them, but there were a couple of minor changes that they overlooked that I think are huge if they get carried over to the rest of the Tau army. So weapons like the Psychic Ion Blaster and the Ion Accelerator, uh, they can be overcharged. And in the Tau Codex... If they're overcharged, if you roll any ones, you take a mortal wound. The change to them in the eight, if you, for each one you roll, you take a mortal wound. 
Hmm. That's a significant hmm. difference. Right. <laughs> yeah, because some of those, when you overcharge them, they give you a boatload of shots. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, and there's like a stratagem now that lets you just max out the number of shots on a weapon also. Right. So, like, Ion Accelerator could be six shots, and if you have crap rolling, you could just do six mortal wounds to yourself. <laughs> also, they did clarify, at least, again, for these, they have not released Narada for the Tau Codex that brings it into harmony with this, but the Fusion Blades and Onager Gauntlet are now extra attacks that can only be used with that weapon, rather than replacing your attacks with two attacks or one attack. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, like the old on it, like in seven, in older editions, like sixth and seventh edition, the Onager Gauntlet said you could basically, you could either do your normal attacks or you can trade them all to do one right. massive punch. And the Fusion Blade was mm-hmm. the same way. You could yeah. either attack normally or do two attacks. And so it, in the way they're worded in the codex and in the eight that was in chapter proof 2018, there's like, you can do two attacks, but only two attacks or one attack, but only mm-hmm. one attack. And now it's like you can do two additional attacks, but they can only ever be with this weapon. Or you can do one additional attack. And I like that way better. Because that was one of the yeah. things I found with using those characters. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I get two swings. I get one swing. I hope I hit. Yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, they are they are pretty much the same. They haven't really – point costs are the same. They do actually have point costs. Uh, and then Farsight Enclaves, their big thing that they got – they get a few stratagems, which – are good and they they're focusing more on crisis suits and crisis suits get a lot of stratagems and buffs in this book. You can tell they're really trying to upgrade them, but they're trying to upgrade them without changing the data sheet, which is how we've seen a lot of units kind of get buffed. You know, they want you to take more command points and they want you to, sure. but uh, enclaves get basically a second septenant. Like all Farsight Enclave units gain an ability that says, when resolving an attack made with a ranged weapon by a model in this unit against an enemy unit within 12 inches, treat the enemy unit as having one more marker light counter than it already has. Which means against everything within 12 inches, you're rerolling ones at least. Nice. Which, oh, and one other thing, Farsight Enclaves can have two commanders per detachment instead of one now. <laughs> oh, that's useful. So I, I was talking with... Uh, Mike from Invasive Wargaming about this. He's like, well, now that you can take six commanders and then you could take a, f- a Riptide and a Broadside, why would you ever actually take the eight? Because you can... <laughs> fluff? Fluff, yes, but you could build your own eight out of three detachments. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's the newest version of them. They've been upgraded. Yeah, <laughs> I mean... And you could still spend the extra points to, like, you could spend the three CP if you really wanted to, to get, like, the extra relics and upgrade, like, have all the characters. Like, you could build out the characters, only give them really good weaponry rather than the kind of weird mixed weapon. they have. Right. Yeah, the eight revised. <laughs> yeah. No, you could, you can build, like, competitively, you could build a better eight, which I think is kind of fun. Uh, and then there's Gene Stealer cult stuff, which is primarily more stratagems and build your own cult. Yep. And some new, and some new uh, cult specific psych- psychic powers, and that's it. That's it for them. So it'll be interesting to see what these books do to the to the game. And it's this is really how we're seeing codexes. Like, I think we're going to see less of the Space Marine or Chaos Space Marine 2.0 codex, and I think we're going to see more of the codex update via uh, campaign book. Mm-hmm. So. Which, when the edition came out, that's kind of how we expected it to be. Was right. Put all the, the, all the codexes, codexes and then do campaigns to get updates rather than 
whole re- revisions. Of course, it does also lead to the problem of you're having to bring more and more books to actually make to play your army. That's true. I mean, we we been through that every unless every you edition. are really focused on monofaction. Well, no, even monofaction. Even monofaction. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, main book, chapter approved, year codex, and whatever. Yeah, because like, like like blood ain't to play blood angels now. Like the way I'm, I you need the blood angels codex and you need blood of ball. Because there are characters that are changed, you get a whole bunch of new stratagems. Like you really do need that book to play the army fully. Yeah. And I would say the same thing for Nids at this point too. Yeah. And Grey Knights are, so, are going to be complete. You know, you're going to have to have Ritual of the Damned with you. Yeah. the The big thing for me that I think would help cut down on needing all these extra books would be if they released stratagem cards for the new Psychic Awakening books, because then like. Yeah, like I would still want to have the book, but when I go to play, I can just throw in the cards into my existing deck and not have to lug an entire extra book around. Because <laughs> like when I was doing for LVO, I had I had the Chaos book, I had Vigilus, I had uh, Faith and Fury, Chapter Approved, and then the Core Rulebook to play one mono faction army. Yeah, it's it's the the, the bloat is real. I'm yeah. not, not going to argue that. I will say that I would like to see them release kind of like last edition. They started releasing uh, what they call gamers editions mm-hmm. of some, a few of the codexes, not all of them, but a few of them. They kind of experimented with releasing soft cover versions that were just like the data sheets and point, like just the rule section. And I would like to see that happen with like, hey, here's the Blood Angels gamers edition. It is like we released a whole bunch of new stuff for Blood Angels, so here is all the rules, all everything consolidated into one book. You already have the fluff section; you don't need that. Help print it in black and white if you want, just to cut mm-hmm. cut down on cost. But something like that would be nice, and then have a digital version as well. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And, and do that for like all these armies, except for Space Marines, because they've already had enough anyway. Space Marines <laughs> by default, you need two books to play anymore. Unless you're going yeah. purely generic. Uh, and that's that's pretty much all that's been uh, released. Nothing from the LVO uh, studio preview has obviously been released yet. Um, there's some new st- like there's a new starter set for Titanic as that's been announced, and uh, I think nothing new for Kill Team recently. So I mean that's that's primarily it for 40k is these is the campaign books and. Now we're just waiting on. I think uh, Saga of the Beast will be next, probably in a in a few weeks, and yeah. then uh, Engine War after that, and then we're starting to run out of factions <laughs> to update. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll see what's coming down the pipe. Uh, but uh, that is pretty much it. Oh, one other thing. Actually, I almost forgot. Chibis, the yeah. Bandai Chibis came out. Oh yes. So I stopped by my local GW, and they had a a box of them and they are all blind bags. So you can't just like say, I'm going to collect all five. Good luck. You can, you can <laughs> not, in, not in a go of five. I'll tell you the collation is such that I bought five and of those five, I got two unique models. Ouch. I was going to guess three. Oof. I got two and three. So Richard, have a great night. I got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I got two Skatari and three gray Knights out of wow. five. I don't know if that kind of collation is, Standard. What was this? A, a just open box, or was this just? It was things it was on a, the shelf. It was a box on the shelf that was just a whole bunch of individual, like, like sealed packages of like they're in like 
they're all packaged one off in like that. So right. well, the mon- well, what I was getting at is I, I've seen two types of ways. One type is people when a box gets packaged, there's an equal number of things in the box. Uh-huh. And so if you mm-hmm. you got the first part of the box, you have a higher chance of getting a better distribution well, or some that well, each box is totally random with whatever is in there. And those are the the worst type because then you never know what you're going to get. Uh, my guess is more the second than the first. Oh, that's that's because I, I, <laughs> I don't know. There's no like rarity on these. They're all, as far as I understand, equally rare. But that also means they are they don't really care. Like, and then once they're sealed, they don't really track which ones are being right. in boxes. So. I, yeah, I don't – it's possible that I maybe just got very unlucky with my pulls. Or, or it is possible that that was like – because sometimes if a box is halfway finished off, they take out what's in one and put it on top of Which another. Which is also possible. Like so, <laughs> Yeah. So, again, my experience may not be universal, but I didn't have the best of luck on my first pull. <laughs> so, it sounds like a normal gotcha also, thing. Also, the Grey Knights have very bendy swords. Yes. <laughs> very bendy swords. <laughs> He looks cute, though. Oh, they're very... They're adorable. The The Skatari is pretty... It looks like a Jawa. He, he does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really does. It yeah. really, really does. <laughs> oh, my God. So, so we can have Skatari going Utini running around. But, yeah, uh, so when are the Skatari going to get their version of a Land Raider that crawls on dunes, right? Um, Actually, they they have hovercrafts now. So. No, they don't want that. They want a big crawler that goes across dunes. No, yeah. no, you don't get a sand yeah. crawler. They ha- they'd be more likely to have something that walks across dunes than crawls. Okay, just take off the treads and put on legs. I mean, take an after version of an adat. <laughs> I mean, isn't Dune Strider one of their things? Uh, that yeah. is true. That is true. They normally don't look that much like Jawas. Just the the uh, chibi okay. ones do. Normally, yeah, they have the normal they, human. Yeah. They have human proportions. Uh, okay. The, I'll admit the Grey Knight looks kind of like a robot. I've seen people do a little bit of touch-up on painting, like adding a wash or two to it to kind of pop the detail a bit more. Oh, actually, that would yeah. make the detail pop because, yeah, the detail is yeah. kind of washed out. Yeah, especially yeah. the Grey Knight because it's just bright silver with... Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I think I'll probably touch this up and actually paint <laughs> it myself. I, and I've seen some pictures of people who are like, it doesn't take much to pop to, to really sharpen them up a bit but yeah it's like granted these are like mass produced right. plastic toys yeah. i mean they're there to be cute they are there to be cute collectibles so yeah. and they do do that they definitely qualify <laughs> no big news no no big rules announcements or changes or anything like that uh, we're obviously still at least a month out possibly two from uh, the next big feq so we'll see what changes that may bring and that'll probably tie into our main topic but uh but anyway, uh, moving on uh, to listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners. And at the end of the segment, we'll tell you how to uh, get your letter to us to read on the air. And again, this is we, – we are still continuing the list from the Facebook post that we did uh, <laughs> like a month ago or so. If we don't get to you, you are on the list. We are still just working through and trying to keep this uh, time sensitive. So. So first up, a letter from Ben Dake. And uh, Ben wrote, Hi, y'all. Myself and a few other people are painting up Smash Captains for various Space Marine chapters to be raffled off at the Bell of Lost Souls Open this summer in Austin, Texas. The raffle is to benefit Table War Charities, which works to provide autism advocacy resources for parents in schools. I was wondering if y'all could help get the word out to your listeners to help us raise as much for this cause as possible. And that is absolutely something we will do because we believe in using our wargaming powers for awesome. 
any sort of ra- raffle for charity, especially one that for a cause like this, because that is, you know, that is a, a thing that, you know, parents are, are, you know, having an autistic kid is, it's a different experience than having, you know, more of a neurotypical kid. And so having resources available to help you and help your kid, you know, kind of adjust to, to school situations, that's very important. And so, and parents are often cash strapped enough as it is to try to get those. So having resources available to them is very good. So uh, yes, definitely check out the Bella, Bella Lost Souls open this summer in Austin. Uh, I'm sure they will have more details on that. We'll try to get links in our show notes as uh, much as possible. But yeah, if you are attending, definitely check that out and, uh, you know, throw a few dollars at the cause and maybe win yourself a nicely painted smash captain to throw into your army because Marines are super good right now. So <laughs> you won't do badly. All right, next is from Justin Divers. Justin writes, GW has done both of these, so which do you prefer? Is it better to, A, have a massive amount of options but a ton of books to carry and a crazy amount of rules to try and memorize, such as Space Marines and Chaos, or B, have an army with only Codex and the newest chapter approved, like Necrons or Tau, no real options or new models, but learning what your army, what all your army does, and you can do it possibly, you know, where you can learn everything in one book. Which is better? Which I think we just discussed that that's no longer the case. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's not really the case, but especially like if we can take it, if you're a new player coming in, I'll spin it that way. Uh-huh. Would it be easier to find something where you can just look at the book and kind of just try and master that before going on to another, adding more stuff to it? Or is it better to just throw everything at them with all of the books and say, here's your entry point, go for all these, and good luck? I mean, yeah, because <laughs> they both have their benefits. They do. They do. Um, uh, thing is, Space Marines and Chaos, they don't have a, like, they really don't at this point have, a, Space Marines have one extra book because the, the Codex supplements, but really, I'd say all these armies are kind of on the same page, and depending on which Space Marine army you pick, like, again, I'm going to go with Blood Angels. Blood Angels don't have a lot of the extra options to take because it's not like you're picking a chapter or a legion or a sept that, I mean, even just like Necrons, like which, like which dynasty do you pick or Tau, which sept do you pick? You pick Tau sept, but you know, <laughs> because that's the good one, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, that's how you learn that. But like, uh, you know, depending on which army you play, like custodes is a very easy army because again, there, you don't have any of that to deal with. You yeah. also only still have really one book. You still only have one book, although that may change and if when they get to that Psychic Awakening book. Because, I mean, they've already got, like, different color patterns for different, like, subsets of custodes mm-hmm. in the main codex. So you, I could absolutely see them getting some extra rules that are specific to those or build your own, like, chamber. Yeah, so, so it's always, in my opinion, best to try and learn what you've got and do it really well. And I will admit, yeah, it's hard to do that when you have so many rules. If you're just starting out, if you already have learned the first rules, adding in that second book makes things new and fresh again for you to have stuff to learn. So it's just, I think for an experienced player who's already played that faction, having two books is fine. or Because it gives you something new to learn and it makes the game fresh. Mm-hmm. But if you're just now coming in, I, unless it's replacement rules, I would say just Try and stick with the one unless you really need those replacement rules and then go for the multiple books. Right. Well, the tricky part now is that when they were introduced, like or when 8th edition was introduced, and we, this is still the starter product we have out there, 
Space Marines were very much an easy army to kind of pick up and play, especially because everything was like kind of default color uh, Ultramarines. This, you're going to play Ultramarines, so here's how Ultramarines <laughs> work. And now they are one of the more complex armies because they have so many choices and so many right ways to play them, Iron Hands, and so many possibilities. So they're whereas Death Guard is still probably a decent starter army, but again, who knows if that'll change soon? So. I don't know if there is like, like in a in a hypothetical universe, I would think the latter would be easier for new players to pick up. I think everything's kind of in the former state though right now. Everything is. Like I'll kind of throw out there that I I almost wonder if the starter product of the starter army is kill team at this point. That probably to get in and you know to get in and and start with just like simple rules for one faction you just play kill team and then when you get when you find a faction that you like you know and and understand kind of how they play then you graduate up to 40k and all the additional choices and layering that kind of comes onto that um even then kevin that's a big jump because if you think about you're going from like a squad to an army that that feels like there's nothing in the in between Having a full-fledged like two thousand point army and having a kill team, yeah. It's, so it having something, yeah, something to like, uh, not a skirmish because skirmish is what kill team is, but something in between a skirmish and a fight. Well, I don't know what yeah. that would be, but yeah, no, I mean, and I agree, but like I, yeah, like as as Rob mentioned, like all of the codexes with psychic awakening and stuff, you know, especially are kind of in that stage where it's like the rules aren't really in one place anymore and you know as as a veteran of the hobby i love the variety and the fluff that we get but yeah it it definitely can create a barrier to entry so i I understand that concern and and i don't think we really i I really don't know if we've been in that state since maybe early sixth edition because sixth edition is when we started getting the campaign books that would really start Mm -hmm. updating armies and, and doing things like that and i think that I mean, it's having everything in one book was is very much an old, an older mentality well, at this point. The, design, you know, both player and design wise. Well, it's also back then you could put everything in one book. Mm-hmm. Now, if you tried to put everything in one book, it would be an encyclopedia. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I, I think we talked about this in our last episode, Rob, at LVO. Like, I fully expect that they're going to start using legends to cull more units out of the game uh, to kind of combat some of that bloat. Um, I don't know if that's, if that actually is the case or not, but like that just seems like a way for, for GW to be able to retire units and keep, keep the codexes and the updates on newer units. I'm just kind of laughing. You're probably right, Kevin, but it seems funny of thinking of type two forty K. I, it's yeah. kind of where where kind we are. Of. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and also it's like uh, there's there's no incentive for GW to continue to support rules for models that you know they are not looking to Producing. remake. And yeah, yeah you know, obviously they've already done that with they're they're already doing that with Legends. Um, but I'm also thinking things like you know what what's one of the corner piece competitive models from marines right now is the uh, thunderfire cannon there's no plastic thunderfire cannon kit all they have right now is the fine cast version which is terrible but that's okay because the metal one was a terrible kit too yeah. but uh 
like it's temporarily sold out right now. They they can't keep them in stock because it's such a good unit. But it's a, it is absolutely a unit I could see sending to Legends, both because a we're not looking to make a plastic kit of it. We don't really want to produce it anymore. And b be broke, yo. Yeah. So hey, let's just say hey, we're not we're going to move this into Legends to a reduce bloat. There's no Primaris equivalent of this anymore. And hey, if that just conveniently takes things something out of competitive play. Oh, look what we did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, eventually you are going to have to, like, you either have to pair, like, pair things down at, at some level. I like having all the compet, like, I'm, I'm with you, Kevin. I'm like having the competitive depth. I like having all the, the options. Although keeping track of all of them, especially with stratagems because they are so conditional can be yeah. a bit of a bear. And that's why the, I, I'm with you. I think having updated cards, which again, we got with space Marines and chaos space Marines, having that for all the factions kind of maybe once psychic awakening is done, they'll do a mass update. I wouldn't bank on it, but it'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope so. I hope they, I hope they decide to when they're finished with this, but we'll see. All right, next letter from Bradley Petzer. Bradley writes, I'm thinking of starting a podcast with some friends. What advice would you give? And secondly, what advice or warnings would you have given to your past selves if you could? So one thing I would say is that there's plenty of 40K podcasts. Don't do a 40K podcast. <laughs> I don't want the competition. No, um, uh, no absolutely. That's that's awesome. Uh, podcasting can be a lot of fun. Like we've, we've done it, been doing it for a very long time. Um, we have an episode of the old show, which I think is still available for download, um, where we at Gen Con, we actually did a like 45 minute long seminar on starting your own podcast. Uh, we can throw the link up to that, but effectively, you know, it's before you jump in and like buy all of the equipment, because we have spent a lot of money on equipment for our podcast to make it sound as good as, as, as it does. Um, before you get to that point though, set down and write out like your ideas for 10 episodes. And if you realize that you can't get to 10 episodes, you may not have a, you may not have a sustainable podcast. So like going through and kind of doing that pre-work in advance and kind of just figuring out the format and stuff, I think is, is the best advice that I can give. Um, because what you don't want to do is you don't want to go and start doing it, do all of the work, and then realize that uh, no, we don't, re- we're not really providing anything unique or sustainable. Um, because then you'll get burned out on it, and you'll you'll be struggling to come up with topics and struggling with you know uh, motivation and stuff like that. I, I guess I'll, I'll talk on top of Kevin on those is go at your own pace. Because when we started this one. Um, it was what, four of us, three of us around a handheld mic. It was four of us. Most of the time, four of us. But we just had a handheld mic. We sat around a table. Um, and we found that enjoyable. And so, and and the more you enjoy what you're doing, you will stick with it a lot longer. Even if, like Kevin said, that even if the market's saturated or that you're talking about the same thing others, people can hear when you're having a good time. People Mm -hmm. can hear if you're just phoning it in. So as long as you're, you've got a passion about it, I mean, you might not find listeners right away, but people will come over time, especially if, if yep. like you do something and people find it and they find it entertaining and want to listen to you. Um, and then I know 
the other lesson would be get advice from others, which here's your first step of yeah. asking us advice. Yeah. Cause I know Rob, we, we reached out to what independent characters, independent, like I reached out to Carl at independent characters to ask him like, Hey, so like what's your, like, and he had articles on like recording setup, but I'd ask him questions about things. Um, yeah. Talk, you know, talk to other people to, like, uh, we talked to an audio guy, like our friend Damon, who's an audio guy, kind of like, hey, what gear should we get for doing this? Well, um, that was later on, or, or well, did you yeah, do that right away? But I mean, that's still, yeah. but we've had people write into us and say, hey, what gear do, do you do you guys use? And we've told them, and, and I know at least one podcast has picked that stuff up, and that's what they use. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, you know, kind of going along with uh, the, uh, you know, have 10 episodes plot out is also like, find find your voice and theme. Um, yeah, there's a lot, you know, as, as you pointed out, Kevin, there's a lot of 40k podcasts out there. F- figure out how is your show going to be uniquely yours and what is your focus going to be? For us, our focus from the early days was focusing on new players and like helping bring new players into the hobby. And so a lot of our focus was on, hey, here's some good armies to start with. Here's things that like, here's how to understand like the assault phase. And, you know, here's how to understand how to deal with armor and things like that. Uh, And that was a lot of, if you look at our early episodes, a lot of that were in that, were along that theme or, hey, so you want to start an army? Here's here's a, a way you could get started in this army or that army. We've never been a big lore podcast necessarily. We've, we dabble with competitive play, but we're not a competitive focused podcast, but there are podcasts for that out there. So figure out, um, what your, what, what is your focus? What do you want to do? And then the other thing is find your voice is how are you going to talk about that? Uh, so for example, you could be, you could be more of like on the comedic side, you know, where you just, you guys are sitting around, you laugh, you have fun, and occasionally you'll talk 40k. That'd be more like a life at, life after the cover save or maybe you want to talk heavy heavy duty competitive but you're definitely not going to hold back on anything that's more of like a flying monkey wargaming podcast uh maybe you wanted to talk uh more on the lore that's more of a masters of the fort you know it's like they they have picked a not just a focus but they also have a a way they talk about it Mm -hmm. and and finding your voice and finding out how you want to talk about it and that could be everything from like what kind of language are you going to allow uh, how, what kind of, like, how many people are you going to have? How many different opinions do you want to have on the show? Like, are you all going to be kind of in lockstep or do you want to have debates on the show? Um, do you want to open things up to listeners or do you just want to kind of keep it just you and your friends? That There's a lot of places you can go. Also, alongside that, be careful that you don't accidentally steal somebody else's voice. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, name or, well not not just name not that so much but uh when i say steal oh, I somebody else's voice uh i have had to stop listening to a lot of 40k podcasts and that was a decision i made several years ago which is a shame because i really like listening to them but i also find myself unconsciously absorbing their ideas mm-hmm. and then regurgitating them and then listening to it afterwards, like, oh, crap, I took that from, like, Jaded Gamer Cast, or I took that from Independent Characters, and I don't want to do that. I'll yeah. keep try to still keep my an ear to the ground and know what people are talking about, but I will I, – I, I try to – because I just know that my brain will just stash that away and then spit it back out, and it's not necessarily my ideas. Yeah. And, and really, I, I don't – as far as, like – what advice we would give ourselves going back. I, I honestly feel pretty good about how we developed the show. Same. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because, I think it's because we asked a lot of these questions when we started, like, 
you know, at the time that Preferred Enemy started, like we were already doing under discussion. So there was, you know, there was a familiarity with podcasting and like some of the tech side of it. Um, at the time, it wasn't like a super saturated market. So it was a little bit easier for us to find our audience. But um, yeah, like I, I don't know that I would have much, much different for us to, you know, to do. Uh, with how we set it up, I think we I think we've done a pretty good job with it. But that's because we were asking those questions. We were talking to other people. Well, and I'll say one other thing that we haven't. I keep on thinking we need to do an episode on sometime is is burnout. Is I think each one of us in this table here, Kevin's included at the table, um, <laughs> have been burned out on the game, have been burned out on the podcast at times. But the other people in the room have kind of helped keep things going, keep things interesting. And it kind of helps you get through that because I think if we all got burned out at the same time, then the, be rough. the passion wouldn't be there and people would be able to tell. Yeah. So I, I think having others around to kind of help keep you going. And I think we've done a good job of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the same time, like uh, John, who hosted for the yeah. first like 50 episodes of the show, uh, he had burnout yeah. hard on the game he and, he de- and he departed. And that's the other thing is like, if somebody hits hard burnout and there's and they just don't feel don't force that, it. Yeah, don't force somebody to to record a show they don't want to do. Hey, uh, uh, who was that? Uh, I thought we agreed to not talk about them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> hey, I stuck <laughs> tape over his picture on on the Facebook page. So yeah, you know. we probably should we update the graphic. <laughs> we should probably we, we're going to do that at 200 episodes, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Eleven episodes ago, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> We hurt you, Kevin. Uh, I see where I said that's fine. <laughs> In Phoenix, <laughs> I'm not wrong. And, and I think actually, if there's the other piece of advice is be flexible. Oh yeah, uh, because yeah. we we have found that we've had to be because situations change. Uh, this show again, as, as was pointed out, was four of us sitting around a hand recorder on a table, and then we got newer equipment. And it was four of us sitting around a mixer board and four microphones at a table, and. And then Kevin got relocated to Phoenix and suddenly we're like, oh, well, now we've got to, we've got to adjust to doing remote shows. And now Dennis is getting ready to move in the next few months to Dallas and we're probably going to go fully remote. And so part of that is being flexible and be like, well, it's like we could, we could try to just cut the show down to just people that are local, and it would be me and Richard talking about probably hobby stuff the whole time. Yeah, I, I would be sad. <laughs> <laughs> but we, you know, we've actually done a few. You know, with winter weather, also we've had to be flexible and yeah. do remote shows as well. You know, do everything via Skype. Well, and and just time frames. I mean, we're not always available at the same times mm-hmm. at the same times of the week, so we've been flexible on our our recording schedules too. Yeah, just finding when people can meet together. Yes. Yeah. So you do what you got to do, but yeah, be flexible, try to you know, work together to avoid burnout. Know if you've got your, if you're actually feeling the passion, kind of prep your show, come up with your ideas. I mean, th- these are all good ideas and they're all things I think, yeah, going into a podcast, you should know. But I, I, yeah, I really, I don't, and I don't want to sound like we're, like we're perfect, but it's like, I really think we managed to avoid any of the, the pitfalls. Major pitfalls. I mean, yeah, we've we've had our downtimes, we've had our struggles, but we've learned from them and got stronger. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't change it either because I think all of our missteps have actually helped us out in the long run. Yeah. We. Yeah. Yeah. Catch yourself making the misstep and like, don't be afraid to not show yep. an episode. Like we like we have one episode that like 
it was it was not in in line with our normal stuff it was very a much angrier episode i didn't even say the audio for it i was just like this is not worth releasing and you just and just let the audience know it's like hey uh we're gonna record a new episode we're not happy with how that one came out don't be afraid to do that because your audience it lets your audience know that you you're not just sitting here using this as a soapbox to pontificate on you're using that like you're releasing this for them so letting them know that hey i'm we're wanting to release a quality product for you that that goes a long way towards building goodwill yeah all right next up from christopher ciperoni chris writes there's three questions one to each one to each of three of us sorry richard you got left out Uh, sorry (laughs) to rob as a fellow sisters player what do you think would be the best meshing allies for sisters mechanics to dennis how would you improve slanesh this edition the models are great but are the rules and to kevin same as dennis but for corn i feel like we talked about this last time we really did we really have (laughs) and and actually our next letter is basically the slanesh question also (laughs) Everyone just really wants to try to figure out how to make Slanesh work. I'm kind of thrilled by that, actually, because um, for the longest of time, I mean, Slanesh was like over there. Nobody talks about it. It just stays over there. And now you see kind of Slanesh players coming out of the woodwork trying to make them good. I don't know why. That, probably because the new models last year. Yes. Probably. Yeah. yeah so. I think that's a big part of it. Um, I, I, I don't want to do the cop-out answer and say listen to last week's episode or last time's episode, but – um. The main thing is they need a way to get into assault. Once they're in assault, they're great. Um, and so I know we talked about different things of maybe giving them a hard to hit thing. Some kind of like they're like a penalty to be hit, a penalty to be hit because of like the, the like psychedelic, yeah, yeah, psychedelic things happening all around them makes them you harder to like know what you're actually shooting at or not would be a way they need, in my opinion, still they need some sort of shooting. I don't know how you do that in there because normally their shooting phase was called the psychic phase and that's been taken away from them. <laughs> um, so the, those would be the two biggest ones I'd say to make them better. Cause right now demonets troops are not your way to go. It's, it's take all the big things, have the big things go run at the other thing. Cause you need to just get there fast, get there and hopefully not let people get away. Um, from what I've seen has been successful has been like keeper secrets, um, demon princes, anything that can go 14 plus inches in a turn. Yeah. The seekers. I mean, it's just, but to make them better and more balanced on the whole. Yeah. Somehow make them hard to hit. Like I said, maybe minus one to hit, um, in the shooting phase, not an assault because they're, well, I mean, even <laughs> be an assault would be interesting, mm-hmm. but just not an overwatch. Cause well, overwatch is overwatch. Yeah. Or maybe give, the herald an aura of you can't hit shoot overwatch on us or, or maybe a psychic power mm-hmm. would be or stratagem stratagem i like stratagem stratagems are hey that, that's that's in line with how gw's fixing everything yeah so, so a stratagem <laughs> so they can't be overwatch because then if you can get up there and you can don't have to worry about if you get shot less on the way there and you they can't overwatch you that would make slanesh scary mm-hmm. so that those would be my my two biggest things on how to change them around what about you kevin for corn i mean it's it's a lot of problems yeah yeah it's a lot of the same stuff because it is a a very you know it's a very melee focused army and melee is in a bad spot this edition i hate to keep going back to this but the corn demon kin (laughs) codex solved a lot of those issues by allowing you to kind of tailor subsets of units from the chaos marine book and demons books that you could combine together in one faction 
you were able to cover some of the flaws and like add a few things that were a little tougher, add some of the bigger melee focused monsters uh, into the into the units. But also like as the army played, as the army did what it's supposed to do, which is, you know, burn, maim, kill as it was doing that. The army got better. It got buffs. It's like, okay, if I kill a unit, now I can spend that point for my kill to give feel no pain or to give, uh, you know, re-roll to hit or whatever. And just it made the army, it made the army feel like it was thematically playing the right way. It didn't necessarily like it wasn't a top tier army, although it was pretty good. But it just gave you a lot of flexibility where like. I'm not penalized by taking like for say a unit of blood letters and running them up the table and then they get shot up on the way there. Okay. Well, if they die, then eh, okay. I still get a kill point, which I can spend to make the unit behind them better. So it's like, it very much fits that play style for corn where it's like, yeah, we don't really care who dies. Just that stuff's dying. It made it a really fun army to play. I'd love to see something like that come back. I will second Kevin's thing is KDK was really good for corn. Well, and the the thing is like over in Age of Sigmar, that's how they're building the chaos mm-hmm. like sub faction codexes is like you've got your your demons and you've got your like slaves of darkness your 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 chaos warriors and such and you can build like a generic slaves of darkness army and they just released a book for that, but they also have ones for each of the chaos gods that give them kind of that same blood tithe system that KDK used to have in 40K, and they that's how they summon stuff in Age of Sigmar. And there's no reason why 40K couldn't do that. They just haven't yeah. done it yet. And maybe it's that they want that they want to have a different feel where they don't want those kinds of mixed armies, but it's it would still be nice to have some solution. Yeah, yeah like you said, KDK was like the best possible solution. And we we're sad that we didn't get more of those. I mean Technically, Death Guard and Thousand Suns kind of get halfway there. Yeah. They they play I mean, better together. With the keyword systems, like, you can still build a corn army that has mixtures of demons and demon engines and chaos marines. You just don't get any benefits for it because you don't have – there's not that second layer of, okay, these units are all the same keyword if you take an army of – mono god keyword you get x bonus that's the next step that's missing yeah and then uh for my question uh the best uh allies to mesh with with sisters it would be more sisters um (laughs) well for a couple reasons uh first off you gain if you mix in any if you go outside modifaction you lose the sacred rights ability which aren't game breaking but they're still very nice to have Secondly, it's very easy to get a double battalion army with different sisters' orders. So you can do, like, Bloody Rose with, like, a more assault-focused battalion. And then, like, uh, Evan Chalice or Martyred Lady as as your other... Or uh, I'm trying to remember which one is the... It's not Argent Shroud, but there's one... Uh, Valorous Heart. Valorous Heart's the one that's getting a lot of play right now because it uh, improves survivability so you're seeing like a lot of the like exorcists and and things that are meant to hold units or that need to stick around being valor's heart and then your salt side is bloody heart or bloody rose uh so i would tend to go to like just double down on sisters you know more sisters you know get more command points building different sisters detachments and sisters really do have the tools to deal with a lot of stuff right now um if you have to go outside of that Marines are really good, I'm told. 
<laughs> I liked knights with my with my sisters, and I could still see running knights with sisters if I didn't mind giving up if I didn't mind giving up the uh, the sacred rights. But I would I would attempt to just double down on sisters primarily. But if you really need to, uh, I mean, it just what kind of allies you want really depends on what kind of sisters you're wanting to play and then what fills in the holes that that one doesn't have. Like if I want to play just bloody Rose, then I'll probably want allies that can provide me more heavy shooting. So like guard artillery or iron hands shooting or something like that. But if I'm wanting to have my survivable shooty sisters and maybe I want, space marines with smash captains or something like that but no i would just i would just add more sisters just ha- more sisters are better all right i mean i think we're gonna get three more in these should be relatively short uh daniel westerling again slanesh follow-up hey gents i was just listening to the episode where you guys were talking about things slanesh needs in the game to be better what about a rule that says all successful overwatch overwatch hits against units with slanesh demons have to re-roll those hits that would be useful. That would be about the same as the minus one to hit on other phases. Yeah. It just, the yeah. problem is Overwatch does, is that enough? Like, are you going to have enough stuff that gets into assault where Overwatch is going to matter? That's the problem. If we put both of these in place, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a neat idea, though. I, I think, though, I would prefer these just, they don't Overwatch if you had a stratagem for that. Because cause I don't think we have any analogs of rules that force you to reroll successful mm, hits in Overwatch. Not so. yet. Other than. I'm trying to think. No, we don't have those anymore. Because I was going to think of all the Eldar ones, but the Eldar ones are just make me re-roll. They never make you re-roll. Yeah. It'd be an interesting fix, but I don't know if it's quite... I think yeah. there's just more elegant ways to, net, to just know Overwatch would be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Brian Davis, in the current overall meta, how does the Bloodthirster in any of its varieties stack up? As a one-off or in multiples? <sighs> So again, like I think you could probably, I think like the Bloodthirster can still work because he's a big model. He can take out big things. He can fly. He can move. The problem is, is that he's a centerpiece and he costs a lot of points. So it's like, it, yeah, like if you're trying to build an army and you know to take out knights or something like that, the 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 one that used to be the the we used to call him the D Thurster with the 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 big axe is probably your best bet because he gets a high strength num- good number of attacks. But the problem is that like was we talked about with like Slanesh being able to take like Demon Princes and some of the you know the Epitome and some of these other large models and kind of do like a, a classic like Tyranid monster mash list with uh, with Slanesh. You can't really do that with Corn because you don't have the psychic backup um, unless you go outside of you know, mono corn, um, to take things like warp time and stuff like that. So it's bloodthirsters are good, but I think right now they're not in a great place. I think there's better options if you're wanting to take the big kind of expensive centerpiece melee, melee monster for chaos, like a chaos knight, maybe. Yeah. Like I think, yeah, I think in that case, I think you're much better taking a, a knight, uh, desecrator, I think is the one with the, the two melee weapons. Like you're, it's effectively. I don't know if it's it's probably a little more points than a bloodthirster, but not much much more, and you're getting a lot more. So, yeah, I just it's not that they're necessarily bad. They're just not. There's better options right now. Yeah, and they're also big targets, and a lot of the armies yeah. in competitive play right now are made to alpha strike and can just pick your big target off the 
it's like you won't get to do anything with it if you don't go first. Absolutely. So yeah. that that's another problem with the, with those big models like that. Uh, and then finally, our last question, and again, there are more in the hopper. We just won't get them this episode. Our last question is from Ricky Brown. What are your hobby goals for 2020 or for and for the show? Um, I know my hobby goals are I have – well, I've got one army. And in fact, this is a good place to announce this. Uh, Midwest Conquest, our charity army, is going to be Dark Angels this year. Nice. We may have additional ones if time and resources permit. But we are definitely going to have a Dark Angels army, and it will feature all three wings, Green Wing, which is your standard Marines, and then Death Wing Terminators and Raven Wing Bikes. Uh, we picked up a fair amount of that stuff for, or fair amount of stuff for that at LVO, and we've had a, a friend of ours donate a lot of uh, uncompleted kits and such. So we'll be, I'll be building and painting that. Uh, in addition, I'm also working on a Blood Angels army, and if I can get those two done, by the, you know, I'll have to get one of them done by May for sure. Uh, and I'd <laughs> like to take the other one to Wafest in June. So that's my first half of the year is painting two armies. No, no pressure. Uh, no, no pressure. And then uh, other than that, you don't want to see my Kanban flow board of, of fast <laughs> projects. I have been trying to do a really good job of cats, of not buying anything new and just catching up with past purchases so that like my hobby goal for 2020 is get those two armies painted and then just chip away at my backlog more than anything. Uh, so for me, I've got a sister's army that I'm working on. Cause I was able to pick up the, uh, the sisters collecting, you know, the, the special edition box. So I've got that in my hopper of armies to work on. And then I've got a chaos Knight army that I'm still trying to, f- I've got the models. I'm still trying to figure out what I need to do to convert and make that army look as cool as I want it to look. So if it goes like with the Alpha Legion army, that that army will be finished in like 2024. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I've just got a ton of other models and, you know, backlog of stuff, just like Rob says. So I keep buying new things, which I shouldn't. (laughs) We have you have a problem. I think we've established that. Yeah. Let's see, for me, goal number one is make sure everything has a place when I do the move and doesn't like get broken in the move. So I've been stocking up on more and more and more KR cases. I think right now I'm, I'm I think I might have 21. It's either 17 or 18, 20. I don't know. I have a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but when I was looking through them, I'm like, oh, these space was cool. I should paint the space wolves. Then I was like, go death watch. It's like, oh, death watch. This is so much. Fun. I should paint them. And so I, I think my goal, especially once I, once I get the relocation done, will be set aside a squad, aka five minis, and try and get a squad painted each week, maybe, maybe two weeks, but just chunk it out that way. Because I've, I know if I just see like 50 models sitting there. Intimidating. Yeah. You don't, 50 models isn't, but I, I did this a little bit when I was doing, um, some of my dark, um, Eldar was I'd, I'd pick a squad of them, do 10 of those models. I could get them done in a couple weeks. And then, so I think once I get relocated, I'm going to start separating things by squad and then try and get a squad painted a week. It's the goal. Um, I've got lots of backlog also. Um, all four of us have backlog. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, Mainly it's uh, a lot of the, like the newer orc stuff 
that I've put together and just never painted like a lot of the, the new buggies and, mm-hmm. and stuff. Like I want to get a, a lot of those done. And then I also want to start working on painting my, uh, my death guard stuff, uh, this year. And, and then, yeah, that's, it, I, I also kind of want to start working on like not playing my armies the way that I normally do, which is like, Okay, I make a list and I play that list once and then I'm like, yay, I saw things that that list does. Now the next time that I play, it's a completely different list. <laughs> and that's pretty much the way I've always done it. And I'm like, I kind of want to get a list and like refine the same list and play it over and over and over again and actually kind of learn an army better this this year well since you and i will be the only ones local and and soon we'll have to get more games in then so you can do that (laughs) but no that that is the the best way to learn is just to do it over and over again so so yeah i I, and i don't know for our goals for the show is hit year 10 i mean that that's pretty much like 2021 will be our 10th year podcasting then we'll wrap it up no i don't don't know (laughs) (laughs) That I'm ama- I, sometimes I'm amazed we've made it as far as we have, and yet sometimes, but there are other times I can't imagine doing anything else. So just it, it is self perpetuating. That's the other bit of advice. This if once it gets you, if, if you don't burn out, you won't be able to stop. You'll just keep. <laughs> you'll come up with ideas for doing other ones. Like I'm still working on a video project that I just got. Like I want to do. I've done audio now. I want to do video. Like with what spare time? I don't care. I'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, uh, besides you know a job and a family and two armies to paint in, in three or four months and yeah I, I got this no i don't got this but i'm doing it anyway uh, which it, and uh, i so uh so yeah hopefully that answers your your question on our goals ricky and if you have a question for us or a letter you want to uh hear on the show or anything like that like i said it's we've got a big list but get in the list uh, and we'll get to you. And the way you get in the list is uh, one of three ways. One is to email us. Our email addresses are our first name at preferredenemies.com. So de- Rob at, uh, so Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at preferredenemies.com. Uh, second is our Facebook page, facebook.com slash preferredenemies. Uh, you can like us there, follow us, uh, and keep track of what we're doing, what we're working on, uh, new episodes coming up, that kind of thing. Third is our Twitter page. We are at twitter.com slash preferredenemy, singular. Uh, and we collect uh, questions uh, from all three sources. We put them into our list, and we try to work through them. Uh, we're doing about a half hour or so per episode, a little, you know, give or take, uh, just because otherwise we ha- our episodes are ridiculously long. And that's the other lesson I learned: is know when you've gone too far. And uh, <laughs> like four doing four hour episodes every two weeks is exhausting for the editor. So. Uh, uh, no, no, when to say when, but uh, we get we'll get through those as much as we can. Anybody who didn't get answered on this episode, we've already gotten the list for next episode, and we'll just start right where we left off. Uh, and speaking of hobby goals, uh, hobby progress. Uh, so after LVO, uh, not counting the models, I the few models I painted for LVO and finished up uh, at LVO uh, at the uh, Frontline Gaming used games used uh, model store, I picked up. Uh, for myself, just a Primaris Ancient and a Primaris uh, Apothecary in it. Now, the Primaris Ancient 
pretty much as is. I just had to rebase them. But the apothecary was interesting because it was a Primaris apothecary, but basically they took an intercessor body and threw old Primaris backpack and old Primaris, or like not Primaris, old uh, apothecary backpack apothecary. and arms onto him. So yeah, he his arms looked a little stubby. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I have a regular Primaris apothecary and that kit comes with a couple of optional bits. So like there's a different like instead of the pistol, he can have like a gene, st- gene seed extractor in his hand and the uh, surgical tools on his backpack. There's a couple of different optional arms that you can use. So I had a couple spare bits and I'm like, I'm going to sw- swap his arms out. I had to do a little bit of surgery on him to, to get the arms uh, to get to a, a line quite right with the new bits. But it, it, that was that was a problem. But what was interesting was the model was what looked like plastic gray. Just normal gray plastic. Except it had a little <laughs> bit of red dusting on it. And I'm like, oh, okay, it looks like they, they tried to like maybe paint it and then stripped it a little bit. And, this is the- and it also had a Blood Ravens uh, shoulder pad. Like they bought like a Pop Goes the Mini Blood Ravens logo to put on the arm. So I popped that off and I started scraping the shoulder pad. And turns out the gray was paint. And underneath the gray paint was red paint. Okay, well, it's Blood Ravens. Blood Ravens are painted red. Not a big deal. So I start, I'm going to scrape that off and see if I get the plastic. Scrape off a bit more. White. White underneath the red. So I start scraping a little bit more. Black underneath the white, <laughs> underneath the red, underneath the gray. <laughs> and underneath the black was finally plastic. <laughs> so I gave it a bath in clean slate, and uh, the paint all came up. But there were four layers of paint on that. The de- They were thin layers. The detail wasn't really terribly... Uh, block you know it wasn't like obscured but it was a lot of paint on that thing i am glad i didn't just try to prime and paint on top of that (laughs) but yeah so so i i got him cleaned up and and converted and fixed and so now he doesn't look exactly the same as the other primaris apothecary but if you put them side by side you can definitely tell that they're related um and then I'm also started uh, building my last box of Blood Angel Intercessors as Death Company Intercessors, since that's an option now. So uh, nice. I've got half of that box put together and uh, be finishing up the other four. Like I'm going to do four models, and then I'm going to like because you can only fit ten in a repulsor, and I want to put nine and a Premier's Chaplain in there. So I'm going to save the tenth one to make like an extra sergeant for my other intercessors. So I've got a couple options, and then. Uh, so that's what I've been working on. Like I said, trying to get through the Blood Angels, at least get them all built, and then I can focus on the uh, Dark Angels. <laughs> now, Dennis, your hobby progress has mostly been packing and, yeah, and acquiring that's containers. That's all it's, it's going to be for the first half of this year is probably packing, acquiring things to pack in, and then trying to make sure not much breaks on the way. And then once I get resituated, then it'll be, like I said, unpacking everything, uh, well, doing this in reverse. Doing not, probably not as much as reverse because care, I can store things in care cases rather than having them all set out. No, on no, the no, no. You have to do it in reverse. So you're going to have to get rid of the care cases. No. Oh my gosh. No. Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, then, the, then I'll just pull out the squads I want to paint and then go from there. So yeah, mine is just packing. And the, about the only thing I've done is, um, uh, I, I'm going to start helping uh, our local game store uh, host a paint and take. Oh, cool! Every every couple of weeks. Um, actually, I'm alternating off with with somebody else who wants to 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 run it. 
Um, so I'm actually only really doing it once a month, but, uh, I, I didn't actually have anybody, the, the weather wasn't good the first, the, the first week. So I didn't have anybody actually show up for it. Um, but I did get to sit there and, and paint some, uh, <laughs> of my war cry minis. So cool. Hey, Kevin. So my hobby progress basically involved like just cleaning my apartment because so we went to Vegas and then last weekend there was a little event known as the Super Bowl. So I was yeah. hosting a watch party for all uh, all of my friends who moved with me from Phoenix to Kansas uh, from Kansas City to Phoenix. Yeah, and then that took a couple of days to recover from. So I have not actually like done any hobby progress in the last couple of weeks. My next focus will be going through and kind of touching up the um, my Alpha Legion stuff that I took to LVO because there's a lot of uh, – I, I did it on contrast paints and I did not have a chance to fully seal the army. So there are some places where like paint is rubbed off on models and things like that. So, And then just at playing with them and looking at them, I realized like, oh, wait, no, I could do that better. I could paint that part better. So touching up those and then sealing them and then uh, kind of moving on to the next project. Cool. Speaking of painting, uh, our, we're going to take a quick break, and then we've got an interview with Caleb and Kat from CK Studios uh, talking about uh, the airbrushing classes that they offer and that you have taken, Kevin. And yes. uh, And then after that, we'll be back with our main topic, which is kind of taking a quick look at the state of the game right now and figuring out where we need to go from here. See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them. We paint them. We love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the Autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. And we're back, and uh, we are joined by uh, Caleb Wissenbach and Kat Jackson of CK Studios. How's everybody doing tonight? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Doing pretty good. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, so if anyone here, if anyone listening is not aware, uh, Caleb and Kat are the C and K in the name CK Studios, uh, and you have been going around, basically around the country, teaching people how to airbrush. Yeah. That, yeah, we've been doing that for for quite a while now. That's exactly it. We teach people how to airbrush and several other different types of workshops. Primarily, everything's kind of hobby focused and kind of targeted for the um, hobby or the gaming community. And um, we do classes in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. Yeah. So how did uh, you know? How did you two come up with the idea to start to start doing kind of the traveling classes? Oh man, <laughs> that that's quite a story. I, I I guess yeah. I mean, um, you know, what going on four years now that we've been teaching cat, 
I think that's about right, right? Four yeah, we're in, our, we're in our fourth year, yeah. <laughs> we're starting our fourth year. Um, you know, we just, uh, we kind of met up. Um, I was working with WGC, and she had started up Hobby Hangout, uh, the Hobby Hangout, the Facebook group. And um, I just liked what she was doing, you know, kind of what she was about with the, the hobby and uh, building the community and all that stuff, um, you know. I don't know exactly how to, I guess, uh, we just, uh, you know, we started talking and, um, I was trying to get more of the WGC guys to do more stuff on the hobby hangout. And it was just kind of a natural progression. Um, once, once I kind of left WGC, me and Kat just, well, she kind of talked me into, into, to doing this. Um, you know, uh, (laughs) Oh, blame it on me. <laughs> yes, this is this is this is my fault. No, yeah, I could... <laughs> it shouldn't sound that nefarious. Um, I, I was unsure about about creating a program like this because it was a lot of work. And me and Kat, mm-hmm. you know, we just do this as a hobby. This isn't our like day to day job. We don't we don't do CK Studios to put food on the table. Um, you know, it was definitely just our hobby, and I didn't really know how to really go about what I kind of wanted to do. Um, luckily, Kat had similar vision, and she definitely had the the ability and, I don't know, what would you call it, the know-how, the business savvy uh, <laughs> of developing a program like this. And um, so she just said, well, I'll tell you what, you know, I'll, I'll work with you, and, and I'll we can we can work together on this thing and let's see how it goes and uh yeah that was four years ago Uh, (laughs) just been going strong since then it's it's been an amazing journey oh it has we've met so many amazing people in the hobby community and in the gaming community it has been an absolute blast and like caleb said this is we do it it's it's a labor of love for us and it's it's been a commitment to keep going on it because we want to keep doing it for, for the community we've built and yeah, it's so much fun. And you guys, you guys have a similar experience when you're, you're providing a service to this community and it's such a dynamic, unique experience within the gaming community. And it's so different than I've owned my own businesses, my entire adult life. And it's such a different experience just, just in and of itself, just for the community of it itself is a different experience and man we've had a great time this has been a fun ride this has been a really fun ride and it's just getting crazier <laughs> it's getting <laughs> getting, getting to be more and more fun and we've it, where it was just kind of Caleb and I for a long time of course last year um, we had the immense pleasure of bringing on other artists in our um, studio we worked with Sam Lentz and um, he did quite a few workshops through us, and kudos to him. He's doing an excellent job on that path and um, still teaching out there, still doing workshops. And then Vincent Venturella, who's still, we've asked him to continue on with us, and he's been teaching workshops for us now for over a year and a half. And um, Justin Kiefer from Independent Characters, he's teaching with us now, and we've got a just a super terrific guy, Dev Sotogar. He was out in the UK. He's now over in the Bay Area in, in California. Um, he's on our team and manages like our whole alumni community and runs projects and keeps events going for everybody. And just 
the team we ended up getting to build out of this, which we didn't envision at first. We just thought we would run around and play hobby and airbrushing and spray paint on each other for like, you know, until this ran out of juice. (laughs) (laughs) We ended up with just this incredible group of people around us and which, you know, when you, when you get that experience, it just drives you to keep going. And so on the days, because this is, you know, realistically there are days when we want to pull our hair out. Well, Caleb can't, but (laughs) I want to pull my hair out. We we get we get in that situation. It's like you know, just take a look around, and man, this is so worth doing it just for the people we get to work with, and the fun we get to have with them, and the journey they get to take that we get to be a part of helping them and facilitating it. It's just it's been a little bit of magic, been a little bit of magic. Yeah, I was going to say you you had quite the uh, the stable of master class painters, uh, you know, listed mm-hmm. as uh, you know teaching classes. Uh, and you know, Kevin, you attended this. Did you feel like at all intimidated going in, Kevin? Um, so when I, so I bought my airbrush, my first airbrush, probably three years ago, and I hadn't really used it beyond like very simple base coating and things like that until I took the CK Studio class at LVO last year in uh, 2018 or uh, 2019, and that was really the first event where like somebody just kind of did the basics, explained how to clean the airbrush, how to hold it, um, you know, what good spray looks like. And just, it it would have been worth the class just for like those basics. But that immediately got me like more comfortable with the airbrush and I've used it more. And then being able to do the, the, you know, the, the weekender uh, last December, like that just opened up a whole new world. Like that now there's all sorts of things where I'm not intimidated with using the airbrush and I just kind of have, a better handle on it. And I, I think if the, if the classes were just the basics and like the intro of just how to use the airbrush, I think it would be an immense service, but it, it goes so much beyond that. Well, right on. Hey, that's fun feedback. We didn't scare you off then. I mean, we were no, really not trying. <laughs> no, and, and we, put good, we put a good effort in. <laughs> that, that is great to hear, you know, that, that you got that experience of it. Cause that's what we're after. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. When people ask us, they say, well, what is the 101 about? You know, um, is it just basic airbrush? We get that question a lot. Like, hey, you know, I've been airbrushing for a little bit. I kind of know the basics. Is it worth sitting in on the 101 class? Um, You know, we get that a lot. And what we like to to tell people, you know, is kind of the the goal of the 101, which is exactly what you talked about. It's about building confidence. Um, It's not necessarily about the basics. Yes, you do get a lot of the basics. But you will get a lot more training than just the basics. Um, that's why we ask the students to bring in their gear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you attend a CK Studios class, it's very important that you bring your paint gear in. Because we can sit and we could teach you on harder and steam back brush with GW paints, with GW thinner, or with you know, whatever products we're using. And we can sit and do a whole class on that, and that would be great. You're going to learn a bit about it, but then you're going to go home, and you have a Badger airbrush, or you have a uh, Iwata. You know, you, you just, you're using a different product. You're using a different thinner. You're using a different paint, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, you're like, man, I can't recreate what I did in that class. And that's, you know, that's a frustration level. That's what we see with online videos, Um a lot of times it's because it's so, I don't want to say myopic, but it's so limited in the range yeah. of 
what you can teach. Whereas in our classes, we tell the students, bring your gear in, bring the brush that you're using, bring the paints that you're using, um, bring your compressor because you, you develop that confidence in your gear. And we're there to lead you. I mean, you, you took the weekend class, so you know, you yeah. get led <laughs> through the entire, you know, through the entire progression of being confident in your brush. And that's the goal that we want is we don't want our students to walk away with a, a contempt of dreadnought that's completed or, um, you know, the ability to thin a paint. We want the students to walk away with a confidence and an ability to use the airbrush as a tool, as part of your hobby. Um, and that's, that's what we're seeing. And that's what we love hearing. Like what you said, you know, you got the basics in that, in that convention class, but going yep. in and doing the weekend or you walked away with like, this is my airbrush. This is, I, I know what I have. Um, you know, that, that was the goal. I, I, man, you hear so many stories about people that, that got into airbrushing and they get so frustrated and they feel, oh, I bought the wrong airbrush or I brought, bought the wrong paints. And, you know, there's just so much information out there to process helping weed through it so that you know that you didn't buy the wrong airbrush, you didn't buy the wrong paint. If it's a decent airbrush, and there's a, a myriad of decent airbrushes out there, um, you bought the right brush. It's just learning how to use it, how to clean it, maintain it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's definitely the goal of that class. So that's, that's really cool that, that you have the feedback like that. I love hearing the, the confidence part of it come out. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things that you know, we talk about on the show a lot, just about trying to make the hobby easier for people to get into, you know, with like the start collecting boxes and games like Kill Team and you know, Blackstone Fortress where people can kind of slowly build up and get into it. Airbrushing has always been one of those things where I think a lot of people kind of have that same barrier to entry. It's it can be a lot of money up front. There's so many just infinite varieties of airbrushes, compressors, paints, you know, thinners, all of those things that like the way that you guys explain it. And, and actually only you know, said having us bring our own stuff just really makes it helps us understand the process. So now I feel like, okay, I have, you know, the harder and steamback airbrush that I bought, but like now if I go and I pick up somebody else's airbrush, I have, I could probably figure out how to make it work. Um, and I think that's, I think that's a huge surface. <laughs> right on. That's exciting. And I think that's one of the benefits with the class is that while you're still learning and like Caleb's talking about, you're still learning about your gear, you're getting all the technical training. It mm. doesn't, it, I, and you saw it when we're in class, we have such a variety of, of paints available. Of course, we're focused on the stuff that we believe people can get the best results out of from our own experience. So we come to town with GW air paints, but they're absolutely fantastic for what they do. GW contrast paints. We come in with our hard earned steam line of brush airbrushes and we open up the opportunity for you to explore and try all the products that we bring in. And that kind of allows students to get out of their own bubble also with their own materials. And you know how it is, as you build up your heart, your hobby arsenal, it tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we kind of take some of the, the mystery out of the other products that are out there. And so you get the chance to kind of play with all these things in class. If you want to use one of our airbrushes and try out a different line of airbrushes, or if you want to try out a detail brush, or we bring all of that to the, to the class and it pretty much goes on almost the entire time. And that's, that's exciting. We end up seeing a lot of people really getting not just their own personal confidence, but when you see them actually try something else and they go, Whoa, I can do that too. 
<laughs> Man, yeah, I big, did nail this. <laughs> yeah. The big revelation for me at the class was uh, was the inks, you know, and just how much because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I I hadn't ever personally worked with inks much other than like GW washes, which are obviously a, a different thing. And like I didn't realize that, A, there was that much difference between them. But just how much utility they had in, you know, doing the shadows and doing doing those different things, just so much utility, you know, and the mm-hmm. the the tip about the white ink is, you know, by itself was a was a great tip. <laughs> oh yeah. And Caleb is he's such an incredible believer and touts touts the benefits of using that that by the time you're done with, with the one oh one, it's like you're ready to go buy a gallon of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be on your table, your your workshop table for like ever going out of that. And I think part of it, too, um, and part of what probably why we're still able to keep doing this is that we're just actually really enjoying this journey with everybody. And when we get in there, it's it's more it's not I don't think it's us at the audience. I think it's us with everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think we I think that experience makes it a little bit different. It makes it a little bit more fun, a little more inclusive. And having both of us in class really kind of changes the vibe in it. Um, when there's not a lot of women out there teaching workshops, I don't think there are any doing airbrush workshops at all um, in the industry. Like, legit, don't think there are any. I, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any. So we kind of get to bring a different element to the table. And there's always one of us with hands and eyes on all students at all times, even if someone else is kind of distracted with lecture or teaching. And it kind of really adds a different tone, a different element to it. We kind of have this no student left behind thing going on in class. And it's cool. It allows us to be in it with the students. And so we've learned by, by being that like that, we've learned a lot from the students too. We get to walk away from, um, aha moments where we're like, Oh, that was cool. (laughs) Hey, I think I'm going to steal that. That was really cool. Mind if we try that, you know, and it's, it's, it makes it kind of that real fun give and take and community feel. That's fun. We do. Oh, we love what we do. This has been an absolute blast. I'm so glad you got to take the full class too. Yeah, that's I am rad. <laughs> yeah, I'm sad that rad. I'm sad that I missed the opportunity to take the Kansas City one because when you guys were in town, well, I think mm-hmm. last year. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I missed that one, and I'm and after hearing about Kevin's experience, I'm I'm kicking myself and hoping that you'll be back again sometime. <laughs> well, hopefully, we'll be at least be in the area. Okay. Yeah, um, and I'm, I I will travel for this because it it sounds like it's a really good experience. It is. How far from Alabama are you? Uh, that's probably about a two day drive. <laughs> oh. I have no. Here I am. I'm like on on a podcast, just proving how horribly geographically challenged I am. Um, uh, that's okay. I'm in Kansas City. We are literally in the smack smack dab in the middle of the continental forty eight. So. And let, You're in the middle of the country. Yeah, so everything is like a day a day's drive from us at least. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, well then we have we have a we have classes going on about a, a day's drive around you <laughs> for the rest of the year. Okay. <laughs> it's like a spoke going out in all directions around you. So you might might have to travel a little bit. We don't have Kansas City back on the schedule just yet. That doesn't mean it isn't going to happen, um, but we do have our schedule kind of um, filled out through, really filled out through um, 
August with one other class out in November. We're kind of hanging a little bit light on September and October for some um, personal stuff during football season for Caleb's son. So we're a little light there, but hopefully we'll be getting Kansas City back on the map. And that will be a blast because we'll be bringing a different class to you guys than the 101. Okay. Yeah, because I noticed you also have the 102, which looks to be more detail-oriented. Mm-hmm. If, if 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 the 101 is is meant to build confidence in airbrushing, the 102, I guess, kind of teaches I, – I hate to say that it teaches a limit of what airbrushing can do, um, but it really shows you all the possibilities of airbrushing. Um, this one definitely the, – the 101 focuses more on like what we like to call the workhorse brush, probably like a 0.4 or 0.5 nozzle brush. Um, we're going to do the majority of the work with that. In fact, students that are using the smaller brushes um, might not get the full extent of some of the exercises we do because it's kind of easy. It's a little bit of cheating uh, <laughs> with some of the exercises, but the exercises are all made uh, – developed to to build control of the airbrush. So the 102 is more of a of a detail brush uh, or a detail airbrush class, um, but we don't necessarily call it a detail class. You're learning a lot more about light. You're learning a lot more about color. Um, you develop a lot more of the understanding of the inherent transparency of the airbrush. So it does introduce some more advanced techniques, um, and I think it just builds on itself. And you'll you, you just you develop even more confidence in the airbrush. There's a point in the class, and most students are usually a little, a little nervous coming up to that point. But um, we paint on a 75 millimeter orc. It's the orc rager from Black Sun Miniatures, and uh, it's just a, a big orc. You know, he's got a big snarling mouth with big fangs and everything like that, and he's holding two axes. And um, in the class, the students go in and. I, I preface it and I tell the students, like, you know, this is going to be a lot easier to do with a paintbrush, but we're not going to use the paintbrush. We're going to use the airbrush and we have them paint the mouth and they have to paint the tongue, the teeth, the gum lines, uh, the plaque on the teeth, everything with the airbrush. Wow. Which it seems very intimidating. And I know that that like at the beginning of the class, students will talk about it and they're really nervous about it. But by the time they get up to the point of, you know, how we develop the class and how their skills develop up to that point, as soon as they get done painting the mouth, the students are like, man, that was easier than I thought. I'm going to try to paint the eyes with the airbrush, you know. Um, and, and that's what we're after. That's exactly what we want is – is just those stepping stones. And by the time you kind of finish the 102, you just kind of learn that the only limit with the airbrush is just how much patience you have, really, because you can do incredible things with it. It just, there are some times where a paintbrush is going to be easier and quicker than an airbrush. And um, that that's what we're after. You know, we're, we're just after developing those skills. And again, just building confidence in, in what you can do with it. Exactly. So shifting gears away from the, uh, well, I guess probably still staying within it, but kind of shifting away from some of the specifics of the classes. One of the phrases that I see a lot on like your social media or, and like there's t-shirts that I'm looking at on your website right now is I survived the ugly phase. Uh, <laughs> do you, do you care to kind of just explain briefly what the ugly phase is and uh, why that's kind of became one of the catchphrases? <laughs> it's not a high school thing. 
though though it probably had some kind of starting point there no caleb i think you really need to own this one because that is your phrase (laughs) um so you know in your painting um every model goes through what we like to call the ugly phase you know when whether it's you're going in and you're blocking out light and color or you're trying to develop um you, you know, just the textures of the model or whatever. You always have a model's going to go through a section where it's, it's just the ugly phase. In the technique that we teach for the 101 class, it's a very dramatic ugly phase. Um, we used to really enjoy it, and we had to, <laughs> you know, we had to kind of change the concepts of a little bit because it, we're on purpose kind of creating too much contrast we're creating too much um value and shape of the model and the model takes on a a really ugly phase like if you're if you're painting yellow uh, we like to tell the students that that they're going to be painting candy cone marines or candy corn (laughs) marines Uh, if you can imagine those colors on a miniature that would be what the yellow model would look like at a certain point um and so we call that the ugly phase and in the past we used to to kind of not not prepare the students too much for it and uh you know because we want the aha and and it's amazing when the, when the piece comes together the students are just like i cannot believe what i had yesterday compared to what i have now um you know and that's part of that ugly phase that we talk about but it, it was a little stressful so we we had to to kind of warn the students about it because at one point, I thought we were going to have a student that wasn't going to return the next day. I mean, he was so he was so upset with his piece, and I'm looking yeah. at it and I'm assuring him, I'm like, "This is this looks really good," and they're looking at me like I'm insane. They're just <laughs> like, "This does not look good at all." I'm like, "Oh man, this is almost perfect. You just need to add more white." And they're looking at me like, "What are you insane?" <laughs> um, so, so that's that ugly phase that we talk about, and. Any of the CK Studio uh, alumni that are sitting here listening to this, that have gone through the class, they're all just kind of giggling personally because they all know like how the development of it goes, and that that's where that that term "I survived the ugly phase" came in. It's 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 from the techniques that that we're doing with the airbrush. Yeah, no, I definitely went through that phase with mine with my contemptor as well, and like that moment where I'm like, I, I think I even like at one point walked up and was like, does this look good enough? And you're like, nah, you need this, like more white here and more black here. It's like that. So it was like, it just kind of that, like, I think of the way you described it. Like if you think you've, if you think you have gone too far, you probably haven't gone far enough with it yet. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, uh, but then, you know, yeah, then you come in the next day and you finish it off and you take it to that next, do the next steps. And it, uh, yeah, it really pulled it all together. And that was kind of, that was that aha moment, you know, that everybody's experiences mm-hmm. with it. <laughs> It's kind of fun, too, because it does carry over into our alumni group because um, we have a group online that's um, hundreds of students that have taken our workshops that are that have all had to go through the ugly phase. And as they post up works in progress, it's almost like a, a, a badge of honor. They'll post up their first iteration of, hey, man, I'm in the middle of my ugly phase. And they'll post up their <laughs> ugly phase things. And everybody's like, yeah, dude, or push contrast a little bit more or, you know, and it's, it's kind of fun, but you have to take it there and it's got, it's 
got to get there before we'll let you go on to the next phase. And it makes it fun. So Caleb kind of made up a, a word for it to kind of get people to understand that this is actually something we're really pushing for. We want this to look as ugly as possible by the end of day one, but it's got to look <laughs> a certain kind of possible or a certain yeah. kind of ugly. It's got to be going in a direction. So it's not just sit down and just make your model ugly. There's actually a lot going on to get there because we're going to show you how to get somewhere else with that. And the technique just carries forward. Everybody starts their models out this way now. And it's really fun. It's fun to see how that progresses. And it works across all different sizes and levels of projects from terrain to everything else. So it's, it's kind of neat. It's been fun. That term has, has shown up in a lot of places, the, the ugly phase. And, and it's almost a badge of honor now. I survived the ugly phase. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> and then you get to see the models at the end when people do post up their works in progress of their new projects and stuff. And you get to see the, the next phase, the next iteration of it. And it's like, oh, yeah, dude, you nailed it. That's cool. <laughs> really fun. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that is ex that's exactly how it went for me. So uh, I just I wanted to I, I'm sure people have seen that out there that haven't taken the classes. I kind of wanted just to get a get your explanation on it, because there's there's not really a way that I could describe it that would do it nearly as much justice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the last thing that I wanted to ask you all about was uh, you guys got to do a cool thing uh, earlier this year with Games Workshop um, where you posted some airbrushing videos uh, on the the Citadel Color uh, website, uh, what was that experience like, and how did that just all kind of come about? I, I I'll talk about the experience side of it, and I'll let Kat <laughs> talk about how it came about. Um, <laughs> the experience was extremely stressful, <laughs> incredibly stressful. <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. In a good way. Um, man. I'll, I have such a profound respect for Duncan and Peachy and their ability to get on camera and to be able to talk and uh, just it's it was stressful. I mean, it was really I, I don't know how to put it exactly into words. Um, you know, it was cool. It was it was like, you know, an amazing experience and and getting to to put out just just a, a, a touch of of how we feel about the airbrush and about the paints um, was so cool. The opportunity to do that. Hopefully I get better at it and it becomes a little easier. Um, but, you know, it was it was it was a, a once in a lifetime experience for sure. I, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I want to do more. I want to I want to, to show more. The, the videos are very simple. They were just really, this is an introduction to the air range. These are some of the things that you can do with it. We didn't even really get to go into like how you would do it. It just kind of showed what you can do with it. And there, there's so much to share. So I'm super excited yeah. for that. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was <laughs> different. Um, <laughs> The next videos are gonna the next videos are gonna go a lot differently when he gets to actually get in there and get into his juju of teaching. Yeah. Because this was these were literally just meant to do exactly what they did. It was a hey, we have these products out here. The next um evolution of videos will, will be way more technical than that. And Caleb, I think, will be a lot and a lot more of his element because he's 
he, we don't go and try and sell product to people was one Mm -hmm. thing, you know? And so having to kind of flip from the instructor to kind of just promoting a product line was a little bit different, but man, what a fun experience that is that we had such a great time. And it was, um, we did a lot on that trip. We were there for over a week at GW um, Nottingham, their headquarters, and did a lot of different projects with them. And so the filming kind of happened towards the end of our stay. It was the last two days that we were there. <laughs> it was funny because we kind of laugh, you know, like the first video, Caleb will say, you know, that's a 30 second video that took me like two and a half hours to film. <laughs> <And it> just, <laughs> it was literally like that. And man, their video production team is just so professional and so incredibly patient. And they, they had absolutely no problem with the let, let's let's figure this out so we make it right and do something that was literally new to Caleb. I mean, he doesn't get on camera and do stuff like that. So he's got. I think <laughs> would it be safe to say, Caleb, you kind of worked out all of your your nerves on that. The next videos are going to be pretty epic. Yeah, I I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. Well, I think maybe we'll do them together and just maybe the possibility that I'll be teasing you the whole time. That'll make it a little bit easier. I mean, it usually, that usually works. Well, and I'll just say from experience, it definitely gets a lot better. If you, I wouldn't recommend anybody do this, but if somebody really wants to see how far we've progressed, go back and listen to old episodes of the show. Don't, don't. Uh, it's that. No, <laughs> Not even, right? we've, we've come a long way, both in like equipment and recording technique and editing technique. And, yeah. and but yeah, that the whole two and a half hours to record a 30, 30 oh, second yeah. spot. I would not doubt it. <laughs> Knowing how, how long it takes me to, to edit our audio to, to get to the, where it is now. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And it's all part of the process. I mean, oh, yeah. it's part of the fun, part of the fun for sure. And luckily <clears throat> they kind of waited until the end of that whole week of activities so that <laughs> in a good way, in a bad way, Caleb had to be nervous all week with anticipation, <laughs> but, but also, you know, we got to do other things that we were just innately good at with the teaching. And we got to go in and teach workshops there at GW and stuff at, uh, at actually at Warhammer world to their teams, which was really cool. And, um, kind of got to do the fun stuff that we're really in touch with already. And so Caleb, Caleb got to do some really neat things with that and kind of really let them see what we do and, um, made it, made it very exciting for them to move on to the point of, all right, man, let's go, let's film this. So that was exciting. That was very exciting. What a did, great time you, there. Did you convince them to switch to dropper bottles? <laughs> <laughs> convince? Um, let's just, let's just say that there were conversations and there were, dem- there were demonstrations. There were absolutely, there were demonstrations and, it's amazing, actually, as a company, um, how how much I don't think folks realize how much they're listening and yeah. how much um, they really uh, do want to learn about their own product line. And that was why we were there to teach them. Um, we were there to introduce their teams to the airline. The videos were just a side yeah. note. And um, so we were we were literally able to do that. We were able to demonstrate how we use the bot the product as well and we do use dropper bottles in a lot of it we have to travel with the with the gw paints in dropper bottles because we fly 
and they tend to pop open and make a really big mess. So we, we showed up with how we gear out for a workshop and we got to demonstrate it to their product development teams and they get it. They really do get it. Now, does that mean it's going to change anything down the line? No, you know, they, they, as a business may or may not see a need to go through all that. They just may or may not. And we didn't try, we didn't try to nail them down to it, but they definitely got the idea. Would that, would, would that be safe to say, Caleb? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you know, that was one of the, that's probably one of the, the most memorable things for me going there was seeing the development of a product from the eyes of GW, um, you know, being on, on the outside, you know, not, not looking behind the curtain. We always tend to, to look at GW as um, kind of this megalith that is just kind of about the bottom dollar um, I know that it probably gets hammered on a bit on, online, you know, and and it's easy to kind of buy into that idea that, oh, well, the reason that they're they're doing the dropper bottles is because they want you to spill paint. So you buy more paint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, one of the neat things that we found out was how much development went into the seal on the dropper paint so that they're not drying out the pots, not the dropper on the pots. <laughs> I'm sorry. On the, on the pots, not the dropper bottle. Um, on, on the pots, the seal, I, I mean the, the developer, and he's very proud of, of what he did because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you know there's four seals? There's four layers of seal on the, on a regular GW pot, that lid. Um, and it's all developed a certain way. And, they went through like six months of development, eight months of development of just developing that lid. Oh, wow. And I, yeah, I, I was blown away with it because, you know, I'm, <laughs> the I'm like, yeah, you know, I love the GW paints. I actually love them. You know, the, the, the pots, yeah, I'm, I'm not real big fans of them. But to see the development that went into that and why they developed it the way they did, we were just like, wow, I was blown away by that. Um <laughs> And then when it came to the discussions, you know, and, and you start hearing them talking about product development, what we never heard was this is how much it's going to cost or we're going to do this because we can sell this many or we can, you know, there was never a, a monetary value to any of the discussions or any of the development or anything that we did there. It was always about we want to make better product. We want to make we want to feel we want to fill the empty spots in our lineup that the hobbyist needs, that the community needs, and we want to make the products that we have better. How can we serve the community better? Amazing to see how many people are, are behind that because I would say 125% of GW employees are hobbyists. Um, <laughs> and and you can, it was really neat. Um, you know, it's a total side tangent, but – we we got introduced to to one of the heads of um of product management product management and he actually came over from a financial institute um one of the big banks and he he didn't really know the i mean he got hired on because he manages corporations mm-hmm. and and um you know coming into our classes he he took a few of our classes before we got over there and he was just like, man, I totally, I totally understand the hobby now. I totally get why there's such a desire for the hobby. By the time we finally followed up and we made it to UK, he's already 
playing games and painting models and he's got displays on his desk of the models that he's done and the models that he's got upcoming and it just it's fostered that love of the hobby and that's what every employee there has is this love of the hobby i mean the company itself how how many companies do you know out there that they encourage their employees to take an hour during their work day to use the product they're they're selling. If if you work for a jet ski company, you know, if you work for Kawasaki and <laughs> jet skis, Kawasaki's not gonna say, okay, everybody, we're gonna insist that at least one hour of the day you're gonna go out and you're gonna go ride the jet ski on the private lake that we have. You know, you don't hear things like that. But GW has that policy with their employees. You're given an hour of time to go hobby, to go to go enjoy what you're working on. Um, so it was just incredible. And you saw that throughout it. I mean, we get done with classes and we get done with the work day. And then, you know, we'd be talking with the the people that were in the class and stuff like that. And, you know, what are you guys going to do now? Well, I'm going to go meet so-and-so from this department and we're going to go down and we're going to play a game of Warcry or we're going to go play some Necromunda or, um, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm going to work on this army. And you're seeing these people that are, they're staying around after work to enjoy the hobby that they work for. So, that was just so cool to us because it really showed the investment that they that they have in the product that they're developing all the way down mm-hmm. to the guys that are just packing boxes. I mean, yep. it's it's really through and through there. Um, yep. I was super impressed. It, it changed my attitude of GW as a corporation. And, uh, and we never we never got the vibe of consumerism there. It was one hundred percent about their literal devotion to the community. And the greater com- gaming community. And to see that internally and to see it across all departments where it's not something people are running around talking about. By day two, you're like, whoa, this, there's no talks about money here. There's no talks about, of course, there's those considerations. It is a business. But on all levels of what people are doing, it's the focus is on the community. And people have no idea, like, how much they're cranking out all the time and and all the demands that they try to meet for the community because there are so many of them. Their community um, following, their audience is so big that they are literally trying to meet a demand coming in at all fronts all the time. And, man, they're up for the challenge. And they want to hit all these points that people talk about. And it's that's that's a big challenge. You know, and they're willing to fight for it. And it's really cool because their their employees are they're all team members. You know, they all work together. They're all kind of going in the same direction and they work there for a long time because that company is really good to work for and they treat their people really well. It's it, we came out of that with such a massive respect for GW as a company that we weren't anticipating going in and experiencing at all. That wasn't our focus and just walked away from that going, wow, I am honored that I got to have an experience to go in there and do something with these people. Very honored. That is, that is so cool to hear. Cause you know, we've, we've talked about it recently on the show where, you know, how, how much GW has changed as a corporation over the last four or five years. Um, and just hearing stuff like that just kind of reinforces that and, you know, makes you glad to be a part of the hobby. Yeah. It really does. And if you think about the influence they have on so many people's lives, literally on so mm-hmm. many people's lives, you know, we've pulled our alumni group uh, here at the turn of the decade. You know, what what 
what happened to you guys in the last 10 years in the hobby that um, had an impact on you? And you hear stories of people that are, that turned to the game and kept themselves out of suicide. Um, vets that were just in, you know, coming, coming back from wars and things. And this was what they could do. And that it, it really allowed them a healing space in life and a way to get back into community and a way to get back into the mainstream and be okay and have a support group. And that's all because this is out there and existing. And it's not just the GW line. There's so many other Mm -hmm. games out there, but GW just happens to be so big and it crosses so many barriers, so many countries. It's so common um, GW speak, even though we may not be talking all the same languages, they, the story is the same, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, um, yeah, I, I am feel very, very blessed with the opportunity to have, have worked with them. And I'm really looking forward to continuing working with them. I, I, I am definitely a GW champion at this point. Well, that is so cool. That's so good to hear that, that, that you had such a great experience. So all right. Well, I think that's probably everything. I, I did have. Is there one, anything else that we want to cover? Yeah, I did sorry. have one thing I wanted to ask, and and not to take away from the classes because we don't want to discourage anyone from taking the classes. We absolutely want people to take these classes because, from personal experience, they are good. But if if to so, don't think of this as giving away a freebie or anything. But if you had one one bit of wisdom, one basic lesson, one basic thing that you could that you'd like people who are getting into airbrushing or just getting into model painting in general, something for them to understand. Like if you could just get through one basic thing, what would it be? Air pressure. Learn how to adjust your air pressure and you will make magic happen. Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, you know, it's, it's going to talk about the class, but um, learn if we're talking airbrushing, um, I think the most important thing is learn the performance triangle. Learn learn the performance triangle. <clears throat> and, and to explain that just a little bit, that's probably a term that a lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about. It's kind of a new term that we've coined. In fact, I don't think you even heard that expression in your class. Yeah, he did. Yeah, did yeah, we, we went over it, yeah. Um, Kat mentions air pressure, but the important thing to remember is, is that the airbrush is more than just air pressure. Air, airbrushing. I shouldn't say the airbrush. Airbrushing is more than just air pressure. It's more than just paint prep. It's more than just the brush. Going back to what we talked about, about at the beginning is learning how to develop all of the tools that you have with your airbrush. Understanding how the relationship between all those will make everything online make sense. Because everything that you read online and one guy tells you to use this PSI and to shoot this much thinner in this much ratio with this paint and this airbrush, and this is the best airbrush because of this and because of that. What's happened is he's understood the relationship of those together with just what he's using. And then another person is going to tell you something completely different. And they're like, no, 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 you can't use that thinner. You have to use this thinner. And I tried that thinner and it doesn't work. Well, what's happening is that all those people have just found little sections of the performance triangle that worked for them. 
but you don't have an overall understanding of the performance triangle. Once you understand that performance triangle, there is no airbrush that you can't make work. There is no paint that you can't make work. There is no thinner that you can't make work. Um, <laughs> That's a good reason to come to the class so you can learn the performance triangle. Not yeah, to definitely. cut off before you give it all away. <laughs> Rain it in, Caleb. No, I'm kidding. I, I get so excited. I mean, this this really is our passion, you know? This, oh, this gosh, yes. Our passion. And um, I hate to see people struggling with airbrushing and quitting and being frustrated and feeling that they wasted money and stuff like that when literally – oh. Three quarters of the problems that people have, if they just sat through the first four hours of our class, they wouldn't have those problems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, it's tough. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we that's that's what this is all about. This is why we're doing this is we really want to share these techniques and this knowledge with everybody. Um, the more we can, the more we can make it readily available. The the better it will be. Um, there are you know there are some restrictions. It's it's not it's not free to fly, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, um, but yeah, we're working on it. We're 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 working and trying to make it as manageable as possible, mm-hmm. and as accessible as possible. Yeah. And man, do we have a big schedule coming up for for 2020? And can I can I kind of give your audience a little bit of a. a path to follow if they want to find out about our classes absolutely all right um a couple of things is we are on facebook uh we have our studio page which is ck studios and so facebook.com um actually we've got a fun name for the actual page is facebook.com ck studios come paint with us so it's a little invitation, but the actual page is called CK Studios. Um, on that page, there's on the list on the left-hand side, so it's the headlines for all the um, the different pages, is workshop registration, which takes you over to Big Cartel. And we have a store online where you can register for classes. Um, we have a whole new set of classes up and ready for people to buy um, registration into all over the U.S. and in the U.K., um, we're going to have, uh, what is it, four workshops going on in the UK around Warhammer Fest in April and May. So for your fans overseas, they get to take some classes too. Um, Vince will be over there teaching and Caleb and I will be over there teaching. So um, yeah, come check us out. Check out our page. And then just to kind of follow up on this, because I think it's important to note, um, once people get into our program, they have the opportunity to join the CK Studios community um, through the alumni group. And that that's something that we do to take this beyond that singular experience of taking one of our classes. And we've actually built a pretty thriving community around it. And we continue education through it. Um, we do tutor Tuesdays, we do hangouts, we do, you know, show us the typical show us what you, what's on your table kind of thing on Mondays. Um, we do competitions in there, we do giveaways, and we also make a lot of products available to the students that are at our discount prices that we've made, um, special arrangements for with our vendors like Carter and Steenbeck that you can't get this, these kind of prices anywhere else, um, on products. So it's a continuing support system that we get to provide to the students. And um, you become one of us. 
and we we make that kind of that pledge to everybody. It's not just investing in two days. If you want to get into this and keep going on it, um, we're there. So, yeah, I, I come and check out a class. Come and be a part of this and be kind of part of the movement and um, stick with us as we do more with GW too. There's a lot a lot coming and a lot cooking out there. So absolutely invite your your fan base to to come and get to know us and and get to see what you got to experience kevin yeah no it was it was a great class i i definitely uh, appreciate the the knowledge and that that alumni group has has been super helpful as well so yeah i highly recommend anybody that's uh, that's interested to to try to find you at one of the one of the events or uh take one of the classes awesome thank you and we'll make sure to have uh, links to those in our show notes so listeners can find those, whether on their uh, podcast listening app of choice or on our website. So, yeah, Caleb, Kat, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having us. I'm glad, so glad this worked out. Yeah, we had to struggle with the technology a bit, but we got it hammered <laughs> into place and everything's good. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right on. All right. Well, again, thank you very much. And, yeah, if you get a chance to attend one of these classes, take it from Kevin absolutely worth the the time absolutely worth the drive to get there if you need to and uh yeah do not miss out on this if you get the opportunity so all right so uh we'll be back in a bit with our next segment and uh again thank you very much for joining us this evening thanks guys are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real then you need to check out the Battle Mats from Game Mat. They're professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a Game Mat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time to talk about our main topic, which is the state of the game post-Las Vegas Open and where we go from here, especially from a competitive standpoint. Uh, and again, keep in mind, we are not deeply competitive players, but the ramifications of what happens in the competitive zone can spread over into more casual play, especially as people are practicing for events and so like pickup games and mm -hmm. things like that will shift. So... It's just a good thing to, to be aware of. So in the wake of Las Vegas Open, which we had Marines fighting Marines for the final, there was, there has been a lot of discussion. And also with it being a new uh, ITC season starting up, it's the kind of the right time to have these discussions is how do the ITC missions need to change for uh, the next, you know, for this coming season? And there's been a number of possible solutions floated. Um, one has been, and, and I'm not going to link to these because I know some of this is still just very much in a discussion 
period. Yeah, so, uh, but, but so, they're above rumor, so we can talk about. Well, them. some of them are no, some of them are like straight up. Like somebody posted, like here is what I would change for the ITC missions, and there was some confusion on that because people he was posting it on the ITC tournament organizers Facebook, so people oh, man. and and the formatting was basically the ITC champs missions, but with like changes and annotations, and so people. <laughs> Yeah. We're mistaking it for being like, oh, this is what the ITC is changing. And they had to come out and say, no, 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 no. This is just my ideas. This is just what I would like to change. This is not in any way an official document. So, so there was some clarity, but it's, it's interesting to see the, some of the ideas that were, were being floated. Uh, but pri- like primarily it was not so much any changes to the, uh, to the core mission of ITC. Like mission butch is always hold one, you know, kill one, hold one, kill more, hold more, and then a bonus point. That that was pretty much unchanged. But the focus was primarily on changing up the secondaries, and in some cases, changing up the secondaries to specifically target marines, like to to focus mm-hmm. on things that marine armies are taking advantage of that make them better in this format, uh, or. Uh, changing up some so that they stack more, or there's been also changes to the deployment system that have been discussed, and apparently that that is being discussed at the like the actual ITC leadership level, to the point where it's like uh, seize like seize the initiative might go away in ITC it is one thing that's being floated, something where like rolling kind of for an attacker defender situation and letting one side pick the deployment zone and then doing full army deployments except for infiltrators, which would then go back and forth, which reminds me very much of like fifth and sixth and seventh edition. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, that that's been some of the changes that have been talked about actually like uh, at the ITC level. But then at the same time, uh, salty John over on frontline gaming uh, did an art and he was, uh, he's actually one, I think one of the judges at LVO put forward the idea that, Maybe one of the problems with the ITC missions is that the secondary, like you can win the game at the, at the list building level because Absolutely. you, because yeah. you build a list that's like, Oh, I'm going to build a list that doesn't give up any of the secondaries. And yeah. So- no. And, and we, when we first started doing ITC, that's how we said, Hey, list building is an important part of your ITC game. Yeah. But the downside of that is that there are many games that can be won or lost at the list building level because the tactical play doesn't really matter. And it leans towards armies that can just alpha strike and then weather the rest of the game, which is why like Iron Hands Marines are very good. And so like you have all your really awesome shooting starting on turn one and your all your AP is better. You're re-rolling ones to hit. You can move without penalty and then you've also got the six up feel no pain. And uh, so you can just like, I'll kill most of your, I'll kill enough of your stuff that you'll have trouble hurting me back. And then I'll just kill more of it. And then I'll just, then you'll just never kill more or hold more than me for the rest of the game. And it leads to a very static game, which is not good. It's not fun. That kind of, I guess, reminds me of back in the day where Alpha Strike and Leaf Blowers were the rage and out whoever went first won really and that's still kind of where we are mm-hmm. right now and so salty john's idea was how about instead of the itc secondary missions we get rid of that and we do maelstrom cards like do maelstrom <laughs> decks straight from command uh chapter proof 2019 where you build like a 20 like a minimum 18 card maelstrom deck and then you play the maelstrom missions for your for your secondary points 
I think I'll speak for all four of us here and say, I think on the top, we like it because we love those things. I think the downside would be um, putting time in there for you to build your deck because don't you get to tweak it in between each game? Yeah. Yeah. Because so like, you, you, you need you another five, ten minutes built into the time to build the list and then tweak the deck. But part of the trade off with yeah. that would be probably doing the full deployment of armies. So, because back yeah. and forth deployment eats up a lot of time. It does. But I've seen some arguments being put up against that is that in a high end competitive environment, people will cheat with their decks. Yeah, it, it does provide another kind of area in which people just have to be uh, cognizant of that strategy and like what's in there and be aware that people aren't stacking their deck or, you know, aren't shuffling it correctly, aren't pulling multiple cards like there. It, it just creates another layer for that high end thing that you have to be aware of. I'm just going to sigh and say you two are not wrong. It's yeah, unf- I, we're not. I mean, that's the downside is we we aren't wrong, and I wish we were. Yeah, yeah. That's that's been for me. That's been kind of the primary argument that I've seen against it is you know the the potential for manipulation there. Uh, a lot of people. I mean, there's also some people that are like, I don't like having, I don't like the swinginess of the Maelstrom deck because I like being able to decide what my army is going to do, and I don't disagree with that from a competitive place because again you're trying to you know we've talked about with competitive play you're trying to mitigate as much risk as possible and control as many things as possible uh but like that's also not how like battles actually work you don't always get to pick what you're gonna do you don't always get to have have that best case scenario sometimes you have to adapt to a random thing that comes up mid-mission so uh, I I personally like the Maelstrom rules for out of chapter approved, and I think that I think it's kind of funny that the ITC's one of the solutions for the ITC that they're mentioning are rules that GW has explicitly published recently because the attacker defender and the Maelstrom deck thing are both in chapter approved 2019, and I like them. I think they're both good. Yeah, no, I I I really like it and. And it's funny that that has has become part of the discussion because also a lot of people have been talking about the missions in Chapter Approved 2019 are good. Like the Eternal War missions are competitively good to the point like why do we even need ITC missions? And, you know, and also like obviously we've spawned conversation of – you know, this spawned conversation of, well, Nova Open and Adepticon have their own missions. Renegade is working on a new mission format for 8th edition to try to address some of the issues that their older version had with the, the move to a more progressive scoring system that a lot of people have adopted. Um, and so people are wondering, like, do we even need an ITC standard mission pack when games workshop is providing standard missions every year for people to use and have actually managed to get these to a point where they're actually quite playable and competitive. So, I mean, for example, the uh, first mission, the first eternal war mission is crusade, which is, is an oldie, but a goodie. And they even say like, Hey, this, well, actually this is not a new, this is a revamp of one. It's a, they consider it a new mission. Uh, but, uh, but it does incorporate elements of several earlier missions. So it's alternating objectives set off. Player role, players roll off. Winner decides who will be attacker and defender. 
Defender determines which of the standard deployment maps is used in the battle and selects one of their deployment zones for their army. Attacker uses their de- the other deployment zone. Attacker deploys entire army first. Defender then deploys their entire army. Uh, and then attacker decides who takes the first turn. If they decide to take the first turn, defender can seize on a six. Uh, and then they would take the first turn. But if the attacker decides to go second, they can't then seize because that would be silly. Acceptable casualties, so you don't auto-win by tabling someone. Random battle length. Starting from the second battle round, each player scores one victory point for each objective marker they control at the start of their turn. Uh, And then you have Slay the Warlord, Line Breaker, and First Strike, which is the replacement for First Blood, which anybody who knows ITC old school will be familiar with. It's kill a unit in the first turn of the game. Or in the first battle round. And... So you've got your progressive scoring. What's the goal? Hold objectives. You still get an extra point if you can kill something first turn. You get an extra point if you can kill your enemy's warlord. Uh, you, If you can get into the enemy's deployment zone, and line breakers just be in their deployment zone. It's not like within 12 inches of the table edge or anything. Mm-hmm. If you end the, At the end of the battle, you have a unit in their deployment zone. You score a victory point. So it's encouraging you to move. It's in, you've, You win by holding objectives, so you want to hold more objectives than they do. And it's progressive scoring. It's not just an end of game who's got the most objectives. Because that was what invariably led to like lists like Eldar just avoiding you, avoiding you, avoiding you, rush to the end, of, or, you know, like, killing your stuff if they can, and then rush to the objectives on turn five. Yep. No, I mean, I, I think we've talked about this with like mission, you know, mission design in general over the years. Like, I personally like having a variety of missions. I like having Renegade having their own missions, ITC having their own missions, etc. A lot of these missions that ITC came up with, as you mentioned, you know, were because the GW missions were not balanced, were not competitive. They didn't match the way that people were playing the game. So ITC stepped in and came up with this better competitive solution. Now that GW is producing better missions, I don't necessarily want ITC to stop tweaking and stop using their missions but i also don't think it necessarily needs to be a slam dunk that every competitive event has to run itc missions now and and i would agree with that i know we switched from doing renegade to itc for a couple of reasons one was renegade did not uh, they did not adjust well to eighth edition and the way Mm -hmm. people were used to playing by that point and and they're still working on that they're still working on tweaking that format um the other thing was that Renegade, because it was a very different mission format, and, and again, while we like very different, you know, the variety is good, it was so different, people who were not familiar with it had trouble scoring it. And that, that mm-hmm. was one of our biggest issues the first couple of years we did uh, Midwest Conquest with those missions is that if you were not from the Minnesota area and familiar with that format or if had not played at Renegade Open, it was very confusing. Whereas everybody knew itc so there was there was a reason to switch to itc because it was familiarity and everyone knew how to score it absolutely and by that point itc had very consistent concise uh scoring sheets so it was very easy to look at it and figure out if you'd won or like who won you could look at the math on it very quickly i mean that's one of the like i've had discussions regarding uh some of the renegade stuff and like there, we've talked. If you listen to past episodes, when we've talked about the Renegade format, one of their tertiary missions is Solo Blood, and Solo Blood was an alternative to uh, First Blood, which was First Blood. You scored First Blood if you destroyed 
if you were the first person to destroy an enemy unit. First player destroyed yep. an enemy unit, got a point. The other player could not score it. And research showed that in tight games, and especially in a lot of competitive games, whoever got first turn was likely to get first blood, which made them more likely, all things being equal, made them more likely to win the game in, in many yep. cases. So their solution was, let's have a, an objective where if you can kill an enemy unit without destroying, without losing one of your own in a battle round, you get that point. Both players can score it, and it definitely works. It addresses the issue. It encourages you to kill a unit without having losing one. In, in exchange, you can score it at any turn of the game. And in many cases, like early on in the game, players may be swapping back and forth and, and nobody gets it until like near the end. So it, it's, it's interactive. It addresses issues. My, my two biggest issues with it were one, just aesthetically, it's clumsy to say <laughs> it, it's, it's tricky right. to explain and it just doesn't have a good name, but I haven't found an alternative. So it's like, maybe that's the best it gets. But the other issue with it is that. In the heat of the game, it is very easy to lose track. Did you kill? Yes. Yeah, it's like, okay, I killed models on this turn. Did I kill a unit? And if you don't stop, and it, it is dependent on the players stopping after every battle round and being like, okay, did you kill a unit? Did I kill a unit? Did either of us get solo blood? But if you're in kind of in the zone, you might completely miss that. And then at the end of the game, be trying to figure out, did somebody score solo blood because it might actually make the difference between a tie and a win. Mm -hmm. And so I like something like first strike where it's like, did you kill something first turn? Yes. No, that's easy to figure out. Yeah. But I've also seen the argument against that is that some armies aren't made to kill units first turn. They're, they're more like they have to kind of build up to like an assault focused army is going to be really hard pressed to score that that point so it's another thing against them which they don't need so i i can see both sides of it well everything's against assault army so it's okay we're used to that <laughs> right <laughs> no i i think i i do prefer first strike over solo blood just they're, they're two sides of the same coin really because you took um what first blood away and now you've got the two different versions of it yeah either solo blood or first strike uh-huh so. yeah no, I, I do like first strike because again, it's it's just a much easier concept to kind of wrap your head around. You know, whenever you're doing mission secondaries, they need to be things that that you can explain and think of very quickly. You know, like ITC. The reason why, like you know, kill more, hold more, like or kill one, hold one, kill more, you know, hold more. Those are very easy. Like, what did I do? Did I kill a unit? Okay, boom, I get this point. Did I kill more than you? Boom, I get this point. And you go on and you don't have to stop and think about it. And I think that's where, as you mentioned, that's where Solo Blood really gets bogged down is that there's an, an extra layer of bookkeeping in addition with a whole lot of extra bookkeeping that you then have to be aware of and dedicate resources to thinking about. And yeah, it just a lot of times it'll get left to the wayside and you'll be screaming scrambling at the end of the game to figure out if you did it or not. And that's not good for anybody because then, you know, that's when that's when players can manipulate it. Your opponent can, you know, forget, Oh, I didn't think of that time that that happened. Or, you know, you realize an hour into the next round that oh, shit, I did kill a unit that round, you know? So it's, it just, it, it can create a lot of problems and I don't like that. Yeah. And so it, there's, there's a balance also between, yeah. Cause you, you want to have something that is, Easy, clear, concise, and especially for competitive play, 
something where there's not a lot of gray area, something where like, yeah. and you know, in a game that is tight on time, you may, you may have to kind of push through and, and miss whether you scored that and then have to go back. And again, if it's a tight game, like if, Let's imagine if ITC final that 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 last round of LVO where it came down to one point between them, and they had not been keeping track of who scored Solo Blood. If that had been in mm-hmm. the case, imagine how messy that could have been. Yeah. So it's now has Renegade really had any big problems with that? I don't think so. And, and again, it's one of those things where it needs to be. It, it is on the players to make sure they are scoring their games correctly, but that does. I, but I'm also of the mindset that you shouldn't make it hard for players to score a game correctly. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: if you're familiar with that format, then you're thinking of that, and it's not a big deal. And and I've seen the evolution of the ITC missions and scoring over the years too. So it's like some of these ITC submissions and secondaries were difficult to explain and difficult to get people to kind of buy into, but. Just over the fact of like three, four, or five years of Dean's missions being ubiquitous, now people know what Engineers is or what Butcher's Bill is or some of these things. So it's part of it is just the familiarity with that, but that comes into the problem if you're not in the immediate area where those missions are popular. It becomes a very difficult thing to explain, and you have to remind people. And I don't know, it's it can get messy. <laughs> Well, and also mission design completely can change up how you build your army. I mean, again, like ITC is the perfect sure. example of missions warping the army warp. You know, the mission warps the meta in this case because the meta is developing towards, well, what works best for these missions? And, you know, you also have cases like you have some of the missions like engineers, which I don't like engineers as a mission. Because no, I is, don't either. It is absolutely non-interactive. I mean, it's interactive in that you have, I guess, in that you have to stop your opponent from scoring it, but it's very easy for them to make it very hard for you to stop them. Right. Well, I'll say in defense of engineers, it's one of the few things that you can kind of do because, as we said at the beginning of this, list building can make secondary stage be an uninteractive either if you already know that you can't score any of the secondaries and, that might be and, your only choice. yeah engineers is one of the few things you can take always and mm-hmm. you know you can still score it i agreed agreed but it's also one of those ones that it's it's not an interesting choice it doesn't encourage you to go out and do something it's a defensive choice it is a defense yeah it's absolutely a defensive choice and depending on what you take yeah, that can be a very Kind of, it, it can be a very uninteresting choice for your, you know, for your opponent to try to deal with. You know, like it doesn't make for an interesting game. I guess is what I'm saying because it, it's literally camp somebody, camp two units on objectives. As long as one of them is on an objective for the turn, you get a point starting on turn two. Yeah. It's like okay, so find an objective that's out of line of sight. Put a unit that is you know difficult to target congratulations you have earned points which also like it goes right in with oh you know hold one well you've you you're you're definitely holding one although a lot of the objectives are also built around killing so they stack with kill one so you know that's fine yeah well like i think we had this conversation at renegade open um and i don't know that we actually recorded it but we were talking kind of about the the changes to the renegade missions and it's like anytime that you're going to go in and change a rule for a game and this isn't you know 40k this is just any game 
if you're going to make a change to a rule or a mission or something here, there needs to be like, what problem are you trying to solve for? You know, uh, so something like engineers does solve that problem, as Dennis said, of like, well, at least it's a defensive choice that if you can't score the other secondaries, you at least always have this one you can score. So, like, but like, what are you, what are the missions trying to solve for is, is kind of the big thing. And, you know, re- the renegade mission format, for example, is trying to solve every every primary being exactly the same. So it's like, well, okay, yeah, that's a cool way of solving it because now you get to pick your primary, they pick their primary, and you're kind of doing these asymmetrical missions. But anytime that you're going in and making updates and, tw- and tweaking stuff, you got to, like, identify what the problem is you're trying to resolve and then does this actually resolve it. The thing that I think is getting that concerns me a little bit with the way Dean's missions that they're talking about with like the ITC changes is a lot of the changes are like, Oh, well we need to fix this so that space Marines aren't dominating the game. How do we, you know, how do we tweak this rule to punish space Marines? And that's a big can of worms to open because at that point you're punishing a lot of other things. If, if, uh, you know, if a, a, a unit or a mission, you know, punishes space Marines, is that also punishing guard? Is that also punishing chaos? Is that also punishing like, or you're setting a precedent so, saying that whatever yeah. is the top, we're going to start having our mission. Well, so that's not the top anymore. Well, not even, not even necessarily that, but like, okay, for example, we're starting at, you know, you're seeing a lot of Primaris Marines on the table now. So people are like, Oh, well you need to start taking more, AP wep- high AP weaponry that does multiple damage. Well, you know what those those kill Primaris Marines. You know what those also kill? Those also kill regular Marines and Terminators. They kill and everything Cardsmen. else. And yeah, so it's like seventh edition all over just again. This one thing, you know, causes these ripple effects, and you just have to be aware of that. And that's where like game balance and game design. That's that's why their careers. That's why their industries. Like, you know, I. It's interesting to see a lot of people play amateur kind of game designer and like oh well, i could do this to fix this and we do it too we talk about it all the time oh, as well, absolutely. But like, i mean we're doing it right now <laughs> yeah but like you just have to be aware of the fact that there are so many interactions in these games that you also have to be aware of and i think it i think it sets a dangerous precedent to just be like well space marines are really good in itc how do we change the itc missions to fix that I, I, where again, like I think other solutions could be things like play Maelstrom, play, you know, do uh, do these other types of missions that make it so that killing things isn't isn't the main focus. Well, and to be fair to your point, Kevin, Primaris did change the ITC meta because the ITC meta was kind of built around the old Space Marine. Mm-hmm. Now that Primaris are kind of the primary thing you see, the ITC missions haven't really taken them into account because. They do have the two wounds make a difference. Well, and that's like one of the, yeah, one of the changes that was being proposed to one of the ITC secondaries is, uh, was it Reaper, where you have to destroy 20 20 models? Like every 20 models you destroy, you get points. Well, they, yeah, they wanted to change it to 20 wounds. Because then yeah, you oh, kill yeah, a yeah. unit of 10 intercessors. And that was also in response to the fact that, so, uh, one of the, uh, one of the stratagems that was making Iron Hands in at LVO very strong is was it cogitated martyrdom? I think is the uh, is the name of the stratagem. And what it does is, if you have a character, an Iron Hands character, 
and an infantry unit within like two or three inches, kind of same same distance as uh, let's say a shield drone, you could pass the wounds off onto the unit onto the infantry unit. Like on a two up, the unit would take take the wounds instead. But not yep. in the same way like a shield run where it's like they just take one mortal wound. It's like for every wound that would be dealt to this character, you would deal that many wounds to the unit instead. But of course, you still get your six up, feel no pain against those as the intercessors. And a unit of intercessors, a 10-man squad, is 20 wounds that they can just eat up for another character. And oh, by the way, those characters in this case happen to be Relic Leviathan Dreads and Chaplain Dreads. <laughs> so, so that was a problem. <laughs> And so having a mission that's like, oh, yeah, well, you're still doing a lot of wounds. So guess what? You do that many wounds in infantry. I still you're going to pass them off. I'm going to get points. So on the one hand, it addresses the issue that the meta is shifting towards multi wound models. But on the other hand, it's also specifically targeting this one kind of strategy to you and how to use them. And I don't think mission design should be chasing the meta or trying to sculpt the meta. Yeah, I, I, I think the meta meta should adjust to the missions and not vice versa. But at the same time, you have to look at the you know they they do look at the data and try to figure out like okay, so which missions do people actually like? Which ones do we do they not like? And they've changed. You know, that's one of the reasons where the missions have changed over the last few years is because they're like, oh yeah, nobody takes this one. Everybody takes this one. Maybe we need to adjust that. But now they're starting to look at it as okay these are this army is too good in this format we should and they're not saying itc is saying that but players are starting to say well maybe we need to adjust the missions so that they aren't as to make other armies better and that that like you said kevin that has dangerous pre- possibilities for yeah, unexpected exactly. unexpected consequences so you know so, I mean, if we look at the pros and cons, pros and cons of ITC as they currently are. Uh, ITC, very easy to score, very easy to understand. Everybody knows it, consistent format. Secondaries let you tailor your mission a little bit to your opponent. But the downside is because of how the secondaries are worked, it is very easy to build around them. You can basically give your opponent a bunch of bad choices. It does not reward interactive gameplay beyond just killing things. It doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. reward you to get out. Yeah, the most things that do, like some of the primaries will encourage you to, get, but again, it's just the primaries is the bonus point. Like is the bonus point that they offer for holding like this particular objective or these particular objectives are the bonus points enough of an incentive to encourage you to get out you know to play more tactically most games i play we ignore that that bonus point unless for some strange reason you have an army that can pull it off but for the most part my games we play we ignored it because it wasn't going to be got by either person yeah there's there's a couple of missions where it's easier than others like the one with where if like if you can have characters within scoring range of like all three or all four objectives four yeah but and you don't even have to control them; you just have to be nearby them. If you have that many characters, if you have that many characters, there's some armies that can do that better than others. <laughs> but you know, it's like, but yeah, I'm kind of with you. The bonuses are nice if you can get them, but they're very they rarely change gameplay. I've found 
So, so there's, there, there's the pros and cons there of ITC as it is. There's the idea of ITC with adjusted secondaries, which has all the same pros as the, uh, as standard ITC, but I'd say the cons are do the, the secondaries may not really fix the overall gameplay experience. They just shift around which yep. armies on top. Then you've got many multiple, you know, many varied formats. So you'd have ITC for some events and you would have Renegade for other events and maybe more player, more areas using Adepticon events, maybe more areas using Nova Open events. The pros there are there is no one meta. You know, the, the meta is going to shift. Armies are going to shift based very on regional. very, it's very regional. Yeah. Uh, and, and it, it does create like, so when you get crossover between like different play areas, like especially at a big national event, like an LVO or an Adepticon, the art, like players are going to have to have to adapt their play style, which does make that a good test of generalship. Can you, can you adjust your list and your play style to, to fit these new missions? On the other hand, each set of missions now has a smaller set of players playing them and familiar with them and playtesting them and finding the issues with them. Uh, you know, there I've seen issues raised about some of the things in the Nova Open missions from last year. I've and obviously Renegade is being reworked and reworked. Um, Adepticon's really only used in Adepticon, <laughs> uh, right? And. And ITC is kind of the default, but that doesn't necessarily make it the best set. So it's like we're not, you know, you're not necessarily getting the best of all of them. Well, I think what's going to happen here, I think this is going to kind of be player's choice. Like players are going to drive this. 800 people register for the champs at LVO because it's LVO, but like they they know and they understand the missions. Um, You know, these people go play it. Adepticon or Renegade Open and these other ones because they want to they know and they want to support those missions. Like I think as long as there's variety, I think the players will kind of choose what missions they want to play and like what because I I hear a lot of people say like yeah, ITC missions are kind of getting stale. So maybe that's maybe this is an opportunity for some of these other mission formats to do what ITC did, which was take advantage of uh, issues or holes within the GW missions and kind of carve out their own niche, maybe this is a possibility where these other formats can do that. And I think that'll make the game, make the hobby a lot stronger if we have multiple vi- uh, viable mission f- uh, formats. Well, and also one of the interesting things about multiple formats is they invariably will start borrowing ideas from one another. Because absolutely, ITC borrow has borrowed a number of mission ideas from renegade such as Mm -hmm. you know because there was at the end of seventh edition like renegade was actually being accepted as like this is an alternate format for itc you know it it was actually listed as like an all an official alternative to itc missions and when itc redid their secondaries like they like marked for death became an itc secondary mission and that is straight up you know, just a take on assassinate from Renegade Open. So, mm-hmm. so you know, obviously the, the you know ideas transfer. Also, um, the team tournament at Renegade this year was basically using a a preview version of the Renegade packet that they're working on, and the secondaries you had like you had a list of six secondaries and you picked a couple of them uh, from you know for your game, and th- in the in those cases, 
almost all of them were cribbed straight from the ITC secondary list because people know it and it's very easy to communicate it. And and they work. Yeah. So even if you have multiple formats, eventually you're going to have a lot of multiple formats that will have it, – it'll basically be slight to moderate variation between them. But in the end, other you know, there's going to be more similarities and there will be differences or at least more ideas that are common between them. Sure. So definitely a strength of having multiple formats out there. Yeah. No, I mean it obviously will eventually work towards hom- homogeny just because – you know. Th- GW also is pushing, you know, is putting missions out there, and those terminology and those mission ideas are also getting absorbed into, you know, into those formats as well. So it's they all play off each other, but if they're all putting good ideas out there, that's that's completely fine. What I don't want to have happen is I don't want to have, you know, and and I think this is one of the potential fears of having kind of that more regional meta that we were talking about is. Let's say that Renegade – and I'll, I'll pick on them because I, I know Dave. But let's say that Renegade puts their format out and their format is is garbage. You know, they the mission – the secondaries are skewed a certain way towards certain armies. If you are a Eldar player, for example, uh, and you're competing for the, you know, ITC Eldar championship, best, best in faction, and you see somebody in Minnesota that plays in the Renegade format all the time and just wins every game 50 to 10, and you're playing ITC format and you're winning your games, you know, 35 to 30, you know, to 30, they're going to get, they're just going to look like they're a much better player, but like part of it's the mission. So like the, the risk of having the multiple formats is that if there are any gaps in any of the formats, then that'll eventually get exploited. You know, and, with ITC trying to have kind of a national global like unified track, I, I get where their I get where their hesitance would be to like let that kind of that regional meta develop. Um I don't know, I don't really have a great answer for it. <laughs> like it's there's there's pros and cons to all of it. Well and then the finally the other the the last one I was gonna put forth for pros and cons is going with GW's missions. Where, you know, yeah. specifically, you know, going with the chapter approved 2019, which seems to have been a, uh, had a very positive response from the, from a lot of people in the player base. And so then the question, you know, then it's like, do we, do the players, uh, you know, do we have, have the, the game decided, like the formatting decided by the players and regions, or do we allow Games Workshop, which has a vested interest in having the game grow and be healthy, but does not have a vested interest in tracking tournament results and tracking tournament scoring, do, and who has shown that they're willing to make adjustments on the fly as needed, would it be better to have them like basically say, okay, chapter approved. It comes out the end of the year, starting January 1st. These are the missions we use for the rest of the year. I mean, that's, that is the, that's the gigantic pro for GW doing this is, you know, the big pro for ITC is the missions are known. They're consistent. You can go to an ITC event and play the missions and you know, the missions, the only company that can compete with that is GW because they print their missions in every book, you know, GW puts their mission out and boom, these are the missions um, and everybody has it. So even, you know, e- even over ITC, they have an advantage of like, nah, these are the missions that we're putting out there. Everybody has them and everybody can see them now. So I think that, you know, f- if the missions are good, 
which has always been the caveat in the past, GW always have a built-in advantage on that because those missions, you, know, you walk into a store and say, I'm going to play GW book mission number two. Everybody knows what that is. Everybody can look it up, you know, even, even more so than ITC missions. Or well, here's a question of best of both worlds or have cake eat it too. If we could get GW and ITC on the same thing and have chapter approved, have like a, a mishmash of what the GW slash ITC missions would be, then have it in that book and then say after LVO, these are the new missions. So then people have like a few months to prep for the new missions for the next ITC year. The ultimate like best solution for this, and I don't think it'll happen just because I think that GW probably doesn't want to give up this level of control for some of it. Yeah, it could be. Would be to well, would be to have like GW and the ITC, like as you mentioned, partner up and release a competitive general you know, the the twenty twenty forty K season playbook. And like here are the missions, here's the points, like here's the FAQ, and just basically be uh, basically be a chapter approved that includes all of the competitive elements of the game. Um, and then, but I, again, I don't know that GW, I think GW is at a point where they don't want to take that away from the ITC and they don't want to manage it themselves. So I, I don't know. It's it's going to be kind of this weird, the ITC grew up as a separate thing when GW kind of took that step back. So now it, they're in a really interesting spot in how they're going to come in and work with them and handle working in partnership with them. And I, I don't know. I just don't know what that what that's going to end up looking like. Well, um, at, at the same time, though, I mean, GW has obviously worked very closely with Frontline, both on like uh, the, you know the running of the LVO and like handling streaming and prizes and, and mm-hmm. you know attending and and watching games closely. And obviously, we know that you know Frontline and other groups have have had playtest access to a lot of this stuff ahead sure. of time. So the partnerships are already there. I think. I think what would be involved is it would basically come down to, and and I and I agree that I don't think Games Workshop wants to step into the running and sanctioning and tracking of tournaments. I do not think they have yeah. any interest in that. ITC already has the tools set up to do that, but there's nothing saying ITC and even ITC says you don't have to run our missions to be sure. part of our event. It does, you know, as long as you can determine winner, loser, and rankings, you're fine. Um. But I do think there would be value in ITC, you know, have them provide a little bit, a little bit of feedback to the mission structure from like 2019. And then when the 2020 chapter approved comes out, yeah, you could basically like, you know, like Dennis said, maybe, you know, like you release the missions in chapter approved 2020 and then ITC makes an announcement saying after LVO, which is the end of this season, the 2019, yeah. 20, or which is the end of the 2020 season. 2021 season starting March 1st, maybe, and all, all events from March 1st onward will use chapter approved 2020 and, and use that we will use those eternal war missions. We've had input into them because you'd have like, depending on the, the, the lead time, six to eight months of feedback that you could be collecting for those missions and testing them and, and making sure they do what you want them to do. Well, my my concern with that is, and this is this is where I don't where I I would love to see it happen, but I just don't know that it would. Is there is a vast difference in the partnership level of like, 
hey, we're giving some feedback and we're going to help you with playtesting to we're going to be we're both going to agree to co-partner and design these missions and then use these for, you know, for all of our events. That is that is a higher level of coordination and partnership that I I don't know. I would be very I would question if either company is will would be willing to do that uh, because there's there's downside for both. Um, and I, and, and again, like it's one of those things where they're kind of in a situation right now where it kind of works. So there's not really incentive to change it. And yet, so like, I would argue that it isn't, it kind of works, but it's not working terribly well. Otherwise we wouldn't be getting all this push to be, maybe we need to change these. Cause these are kind of sucking yeah. right now. <laughs> Cause that's, that's no, kind I, of the vibe that we're, I'm getting from the room. <laughs> Yeah. No, like, uh, well, and, and again, as we talked about it, that we're not, you know, we're not the most competitive players. I know a lot of competitive players love ITC True. because yeah. they, you know, they, they, again, they can control all the aspects of it. They can control list building. They can control what secondaries they give up and things like that. So it, it's not a, it's, it's an opinion for us that like more variety in missions is better. And, and I would be saying that even if GW is producing, you know, Every book, every chapter proof at six different Eternal War missions that were completely unique and different, I'd still be like, yeah, that's cool. Can we have more? Because I like more missions. Um, so I don't know that the necessarily the, the, the feedback from the competitive players is, oh, these missions suck and we need to change them. I think there is like, what can we do to make these better? And I don't know. I think the best solution ultimately would be, yes, let's have – GW and Frontline partner up and figure out the best way to do all these. But that's a level of coordination that I don't know that either company is comfortable with at this point. And the situation they have right now works. You know, 750 people showed up to LVO. So it it clearly works. There's clearly some interest in those missions. So because GW didn't really build this competitive environment – I wonder what their appetite to come in and dictate changes is because rather than being like collaborative with it, I don't know. It, it's, it's a very interesting position they've put themselves in because as we've mentioned with other games, like, you know, magic and, and other competitive games, uh, you know, warm awards, things like that. The company controls the competitive meta and they have like kind of this ironclad, like, are we sanction the events? Here's the format for these events. GW is not in that position with 40k, and I don't know if they. I don't know I don't if they, they want, want to wrestle. Yeah, I don't think. They yeah, I don't know if they want to wrestle control back. But if they did, I don't know how they could. <laughs> you know, so it's well. So I, it means you're always going to wind up in a position where you have an unofficial third party doing like competitive things. I, I don't know. They're just always going to, you're always going to run into issues. Yeah. But at the same time, I think GW could basically say to frontline, we'd really like it if you maybe looked at doing something a bit, you know, you, I think they could, I think they could apply subtle in influence without sure. push, you know, without pushing it. And I think if there was enough push, if there was enough, uh, you know, from the audience, I think if there was enough feedback from the audience that said, yeah, let's do something different, I think you could actually get them kind of on the same page with the understanding like, okay, GW, you put out the missions and Frontline says, and you know, ITC says, and then we will encourage people to use them. Yeah. 
So, and again, it wouldn't make, necessarily make the ITC champs format. Like, again, you could have ITC. I think if ITC put forward, like, these are the champs missions, but we're also going to put forward these missions and these, but like, we recommend trying out the chapter approved 2019 missions. Yeah. It's like, there, there's a lot they could do without necessarily ditching ITC format. Yeah. But I, and I think, I just think it would behoove them to maybe go back to where they were in seventh edition in the sense of let's push some more formats. I would agree with that and see what shakes out. Cause I think if nothing else, 2020, I think should be a year of kind of like shaking out what's working and what's not. And, and realizing that may, and some of it is also on GW to like, as we discussed, you know, Marine book has good internal balance, but terrible external balance. And that's something that needs to be addressed as well. And of course, the other thing I wanted to bring up, and, and we'll just touch on this lightly because this is all things that I've heard via rumor. There, I have no concrete evidence on any of this. So massive disclaimer, huge <laughs> grain of salt. But we've heard it discussed before also is that when Psychic Awakening is done, we're going to get a ninth edition of the game or eighth edition to 8.5, whatever you want to call it. Not necessarily an, a huge overhaul of the game mechanics. I think the me- core mechanics are pretty solid, but mm-hmm. a change in how the game is addressed And one of the rumors I have seen reported from multiple people, and again, rumor, is that the new edition would encourage smaller play areas, say like a four foot by four foot table, which GW also just happens to have sold mats for in the past, just saying, and a smaller point size as standard. Yeah, with the idea being that 2,000 points has shown to be with the current rule set, a little unruly and hard to balance. Okay, I'll, I'll say lots of things here. First off, um, thanks for the disclaimers for us accepting this rumor as a rumor, because that's not our standard show policy. Right, normally we disregard rumors, but I've heard this uh, discussed enough that I think it's worth it's worth bringing up as what if this, as a what and, if situation. And two, mm-hmm. do you remember our discussion earlier in the thing where we talked about kill team leading into 40k but jumping in from one squad to 2,000 points i think this might address it because a thousand points you can have one squad and then add in just two or three more things to get to your thousand points and that's a much easier entry level for someone jumping up from kill team rather than trying to get to a 2,000 point game yes part two selfish reason i kind of like this is i will be moving from a house to an apartment as i downsize and a um, four by six table is harder to move around in in most smaller rooms, and so a four by four table, easy. Mm-hmm. So so I could play those games. Yeah, so. I have the same kind of issue in my kitchen. I can I can set up a four by six table, and I have, but a four by four is much easier for me to manage. And then thinking on the tournament scene, I mean, two things. One, one, if you have a f- um, thousand point games, they'll probably go quicker. Absolutely. If you have four by four tables, you theoretically have more space so you could fit in more players. Or three, you now have another style of event because some people might still, maybe the 2000 point game stays around as the new version of Ard Boys. Yeah. Because Ard Boys has not been around. And I will admit, I kind of miss it as just that I'm going all out. I'm bringing all the big toys. I mean, because Apocalypse is, is for the bigger toys. I mean, but it's. It's it's a different feel than 2000.40k is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My only concern is, and it's kind of what we mentioned before with like the, you know, just a few minutes ago with the ITC kind of controlling the competitive meta and GW not 
necessarily pushing like that much information into it. You know, ha- I mean, how many conversations have we had over the years about should we play at 1500, 1750, 2000? I lost count. You know, yeah. Yeah. So it's like GW can come out with a new edition and be like, we now recommend that games are played at a thousand points on a four by four table. Or if you play at 2000 points, you play on a four by six. And you know what will happen? Everyone, will everybody to- will continue to continue to play 2000 points on a four by six table and nothing will change. Yeah, because like, and I mean we've had that that pushback when uh, like when we ran the friendly last year and we were running it on power level instead of points <laughs> and the argument we actually got a couple of players who were like we'd really love to play in the friendly but our armies have not been updated on power level so we can't bring as much stuff and we would really like to bring a lot of stuff. Yeah. So we're going to switch over to the GT, and before years before that, it was like, "Hey, we're gonna we're thinking about running this event at like seventeen fifty, and a bunch of people are like, "No, I don't want to show up. Yeah, we just won't show up. We won't show up because we want to get we want two thousand points. We want to have as much stuff as we can." Yeah. So i i'm I'm going to be interested to see how they process it because I'm not opposed to playing smaller games, but you can play smaller games now. Like, True. There, there are rules in the rulebook for, like, if you're going to play this many points, this take this many detachments, this is the size table if you're going to play. So, like, that already exists, and the player base almost uniformly has said, no, nah, fuck it, we're going to play 2,000 points. <laughs> so, I I don't know. I and Unless GW does something to encourage playing at different point levels, I don't know that you're going to see much of a change if, that's, if this were to happen. Yeah, because it, it, you... Again, it's one of those things you can, you can only control the audience so far. And the audience yeah. has – I mean, there's a reason why 8th edition, the standard game size from the get-go was 2,000 points, which in for years and years before had been 1,500 was the recommended standard. And that's what we – and actually, I, I like playing at 1,500 better. Mm-hmm. But again, and it's one of those things like it – playing it at smaller point sizes – I say it's easier to balance, but only by the value, you know, only by the nature of there's just less stuff on the table. It just changes what is good, but it doesn't necessarily address core, you know, fundamental balance issues. You just want to play smaller games because tower better at lower point level. <laughs> I mean, that's and by the way, that's also correct. Like that's why I want to play lower point level. <laughs> I, I do think at lower point level, more armies have a chance to shine. Sure. Yeah. No, it's it's just one of those where like it's it's fundamentally difficult for and this is something like again we struggled with this with the friendly it's fundamentally difficult to tell people now nah, you can't bring those you can't bring those models you 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 bought and painted and are play, have been playing with like no you can't bring a three knight army list like we don't have the points for it we're gonna play at a thousand points you can bring a knight but like that's it like it's. I don't know. It, well, and I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, the the nature of miniature wargaming is why you won't, you know, and, and I don't know how well it's worked in other other games, so maybe it's a thing that can be done, although I don't think, like, Warm Hordes has ever done this necessarily. But it's why you don't see, like, banned lists like you do with card yeah. games. Like, where it's like, like, Magic, you, they've got a, a list of, like, yeah, in, in the current competitive, like, standard format, you can't play these cards because we, we released them and we sold them and you bought them, but we determined that they're just broken. They're not good for the game, so you're not allowed to use them outside of friendly play. Hey, Forge World used to be a restrictive list, and I think there might have been a couple things on there. But, again, that was 
many, many years ago. That was many years ago, and and it was more – sometimes with Forge World is more like, well, people don't have access to those rules. People don't have access to the models. They're not as familiar with them. Now it's like everything – it's easy to get access to the rules for everything. Well, I, also I think what then, Dennis referring to is there were, there were points, like specific models that were like, no, you can't play this in like certain formats. Like I think there were – because at one point they were like, you can only – you can only include this this model if you're if you're playing in a x you know x point game or something like that. Right. Well, that well, was those are built into the codexes. Or, or yeah. then there was the whole what was the people trying to ban the Taunar? Oh yeah. Well, well, I, right. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have tried to ban things, but just like, do you think? Do you think outside? And maybe that is the place. You know, we've talked about this before of legends being the the repository of units that you don't want in the game anymore. But that's hard to do with currently released, you know, sold yeah. models. GW is not going to go for that. But do you think you could like? Could we see an environment where it's like not just like whole classes, like you know, no Forge World allowed? And there's still some events that don't like having Forge World, because, mostly because of perceived. Yeah. And I think rightly so, perceived balance issues. But we also know Forge World is working on that. They're actively we working hope. on that. I still have. No, they, no, they have. They've rolled. Yeah, they're they, official. That's officially announced at LVO. They've rolled the uh, Forge World rules into to the GW team. Well, then so I, I, I still have to wait till Chapter Approved 2020 to actually get the point drops needed for Zrachniel or a change to her data sheet to make her actually playable. Well, actually, probably well, sooner than they, that. When next to the updates, yeah. New indexes will be coming this year. Wait, new yeah. indexes? New new rule books. All everything's getting yes. redone. The current indexes are no longer sold. Or like so whatever's that, in stock now is all that's okay, ever so being that, sold. So that that is a big thing for a ninth. So wow. I see somebody didn't listen to episodes that he's not on. <laughs> well, I still was putting ninth as in the rumor phase because I haven't well, heard. No, this, a, but this this is no, true this even is, if they just do eighth edition. This is a straight up. Yeah. We're re- we this, know the codex. We know the indexes for Forge World have not been updated. They don't match the current rule set. So we. Oh, are, okay. So they're, they're, okay. I, I was interpreting they were redoing all the indexes, just Forge World indexes. Just the Forge Got World. Got it. Indexes. That's just the Forge okay. World indexes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I misinterpreted what you said. <laughs> yeah. But nice, nice. But but could we ever see a situation where, like the example I've I've always thought was like the Thunderfire Cannon is a problematic yeah. unit. There's a lot of armies that just can't. They have no way of dealing with it because it can. It's small enough that it can hide. It's not like you know, not like Basilisk. It doesn't need are, line of sight. It doesn't need line of sight. Like other things that don't need line of sight usually are big enough to make it difficult to hide them. But this thing is small, easy to hide. And huge range, huge range, and lots of impact. Screws with assault armies because of tremor shells. Uh, very damaging to infantry. It's like, could you see a situation where it's like somebody's like this? This unit is unbalancing the game. We are not allowing this unit. Oh, I, I absolutely could, and I, I, could, and I think I've talked about that before. But, you think doing like, uh, but do you think it could be like a universal thing? Like, would, no. do, do you think ITC would ever say? No, no well, we are not allowing no. this one unit. Or so here's units. so here's what I think will happen in that case. And and again, I don't think it's necessarily like the next time that GW prints a list of legends models, they're going to go through and like take out the Thunderfire Cannon and Tac Marines and Land Raiders. I think what they're going to do is they're going to build to it over a period of time where next time they do legends, it'll be more models that they've stopped producing. And maybe they stop producing the Thunderfire Cannon since it's a metal model. Um, and then down the line, they'll start kind of basically just phasing out models as they move the game forward. And I think that's, what's going to happen. I don't think that'll be an out and out this, this unit's bad for the game. So we're going to remove it, but I think they'll look at it and go, 
is it is it worth it for us to update and sell a new Thunder Fire Cannon model if we're trying to, you know, ultimately in the next several years get rid of all non-Primaris Marines? Is it worth it for us to keep, you know, to update this model? Well, if it's not, then why don't we just stop? Why don't we just sell off our existing stock and then we'll put it in Legends? Mm-hmm. And I think you'll see that stuff happen more and more as they try to thin out the codexes and get get the models and, and units that they the newer stuff that they that they want representing their game. Yeah. But it's going to be a time that would be a time intensive process. And in the meantime, yeah. you're going to have they're going to have to address that at a rules level, not necessarily. Oh, for a, sure. Not necessarily absolutely. a model level. Yeah. But I, I think like the long term solution is absolutely they address it at, with legends at the at that level. But yeah, they're going to have to come up with points adjustment, rules adjustments in an FAQ sooner than that because you know, the Adepticons in a month. So, <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I think if anybody else have anything to about the only thing I would mention is like the talk of legends just makes me think of like, well, we're comparing this to other competitive games and things like magic where they have ban lists and, and, and that, and it's like, well, there's another thing that magic has and that's called formats. Yes. Yes. And what format you're playing in determines what you play. And maybe it would be a good idea to show more support for something like a format of legends. Yeah. Yeah. Like as like an organized play thing. Uh-huh. I, I mean, I'll agree with you on that, Richard, but at the same time, I would love to see like the smaller games have a format. I would love to see more narrative have formats, but yep. there's not enough people attending events to attend all of the different things. You only get that at the giant conventions because most conventions can only really handle one or two major events. Yeah. So that's, I think yeah. that's why we aren't going to see legends or narrative at most places or you just have to have more smaller events spread out and right you'd have to it, it would shift the focus away from the from the mid size tournaments yeah. to either the very large events that can field everything or small weekly sort of like this week we do a narrative event yeah this week we mm-hmm. do thousand point this week we do two th- we do Art Boy 2000 point you which know? that would kind of make me sad because I I think the mid-tier events is kind of what's built up a lot of the community in this I would, region. I totally agree. Agree. So well, kind of putting that thing like of, you know, putting our money where our mouth is, where we always kind of talk about these format changes and stuff like for the friendly event at Midwest conquest, we're allowing legends models. Yes. So like, you know, as we do those things, we're like trying to promote like the more friendly format for these events. Like there's no reason why you couldn't include, you know, have, I mean, cause effectively what you're doing there by, by pre-approving lists and like changing the uh, changing the detachments and stuff, we're effectively creating a ban list for that for that specific event. So, yeah, like I don't see any reason why in some of these events they couldn't be like, no, we're gonna we're gonna try to de facto restrict it through format or through list building or allow, you know, even just run an ITC event. And be like, you know what, we're gonna allow these four legends models because we. We don't think they break the game or something. You just have to be careful and communicate that out in advance. Well, and to Richard's point, um, Magic, you know, they have their Pro Tour qualifiers, you know, like to get, you know, to play like professionally. And they don't do those in any one format. There will be like this, uh, this 
this Pro Tour qualifier is a vintage event. This one is pioneer. This one is standard. This one is a draft event. So, and so to prove that you are a good player, you have to be able to, you, you really need to be able to play in multiple formats and do well in all of them. Because then yeah. when you get to the actual, like, high end tournament play, they can sometimes an event will be like, okay, the first three rounds, we're doing a draft. Then the next three rounds, it's all like standard constructed. And so imagine if 40K had that, where it's like, okay, so you have to like, you can get in, like, you can play a competitive event at any point level and still have it go towards your ITC points. And then when you get to like, okay, so day one, we're going to be playing a thousand point armies. Day two, we're going to be playing 2,000 point armies. And you have to be good at both. I think that would be interesting. Yeah. It would be a nightmare to manage. Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> nightmare for many miniature I mean, gaming. But it would be an interesting concept, yeah. Because yeah. back to the magic comparison, magic has, footprint is very tiny. Um, you only <laughs> yeah. have to have like two people across from each other on a table. And I mean, carrying decks is a lot easier than carrying armies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's a, it, there's no reason why we have to have... To, to have yeah. one one format to unify, you know, yeah, you know, to rule them all basically. Saren had one ring, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it was it was the people with all the other rings that ended up winning. I just just point that out for you. The Fire. one format got destroyed <laughs> and it was replaced with a whole bunch of different formats. <laughs> if we're just going to take this, yeah, but they couldn't get along. No, they couldn't, and that that's where it all fell down. All right. So, <laughs> okay. so from I there, I, I, th- I think, yeah, I think we've exhausted the topic. So let's move on to our last segment, which is the morale phase, where we talk about something non-40K related that we just think is cool to raise morale. Uh, and this this episode, I – and we talked about it beforehand. I think The Expanse yeah. is, a, is a good one. And if you are unfamiliar with The Expanse, um, it is a sci-fi property. It started off as a novel series, and the novels are still coming out. There's like nine of them now, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I think there's two more novels coming. I think they've got the last two planned. Yeah, uh, but it's a novel series, uh, and then it was picked up by originally Sci-Fi Network, put out a show for it for, what, three seasons? And, and it and it bucks the trend of sci-fi original shows being crap. It's a one of the best science fiction TV shows ever. It is great. <laughs> but yeah, three seasons on sci-fi, and then, and then season four was on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and it's already been picked up for season five, and I believe season six? Yeah. I know they've at least announced season five, but I, I think it's been picked up for two seasons. Yeah, play. I mean, Bezos likes it, so yeah. he's <laughs> it, going to like keep it going as long as he can. He has all the money to throw it, at it. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, now, I, to to be fair, I have only watched the first episode of the series, but I have read the first three books, and I just picked up the the fourth one uh, yesterday. Um, it is what I would consider, compared to a lot of science fiction, it is hard sci fi. Yeah, it, it is not space fantasy the way that like Star Wars or Forty um, K would be. It, and I would say it's even more hard sci fi than Star Trek. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> um, to quote Mass Effect, because I think this does apply to uh, to the the Expanse universe, uh, Sir Isaac Newton is the deadliest son of a bitch in space. Yes, because yeah. <laughs> a lot of the show is built. A lot of the 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 show and the books. A lot of the the things you're dealing with is the physics of space flight, both and, and of existing in space, and both what that means for. Uh, like how you move in space, how spaceships are built, how like, how 
organic bodies develop in non-Earth atmospheres and gravity. gravity. Oh, yeah, because that's – a like, there's entire populations that have grown up in the asteroid belt that could no longer live on Earth. Their their bodies will not adjust to that level of gravity. Um, But, like, ships are built more like uh, skyscrapers because the rockets are at the bottom, and when they push on you in space, that's what simulates gravity. But the flip yep. side is, literally, when you get halfway to where you're going, you turn the ship around and then start pushing the engines the other way so you slow down. So, like, they work <laughs> that into the uh, – but it's like you don't get weirdness like movie-style explosive decompression. If a hole gets popped in your ship, your atmosphere just starts going out the hole and then you plug yeah. the hole. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> so it's like hard sci-fi and the difficulties of space travel and of well, like having populations. The difficulties, of, the difficulties of communication over those long distances as well. Like, cause there's, yeah. there's several instances in the books where there's a battle happening out by like, you know, Saturn and the people on earth are like radio communicating back and forth to the fleet. And they're like, all right, we sent this transmission. We got to wait 15 minutes to find out if they got it in time, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like a lot of conversation happens more in the sense of like video recordings rather than real-time conversations because yeah. you can't have real-time conversations even at light speed. You know, the, yeah. the, this the technology is feels very realistic, the the writing is very realistic, but there are aliens. So I mean, it's like the whole story is kind of built around what happened, what would happen if we found evidence of aliens and how would society adapt to that? Yeah. It's also got a neat side effect that the the writers and I say writers that the book is listed as written by James S A Corey, but that is the pseudonym of two different writers working together on these, and they apparently alternate back and forth between writing char- POV characters. Mm-hmm. But uh, the writers started this out as a tabletop role playing game that they were playing, and it re it feels like that it's like the the main yeah. characters it feels like an adventuring party and the th- kinds of things that happen and how they deal with situations it feels like a tabletop like a, a play let's play of a tabletop role-playing game yeah it really does <laughs> which i think makes it feel a lot more natural like yeah oh absolutely yeah. like no no not to spoil it, but there's like one character early on in in the series and in the first book <laughs> who who dies to like a sp- a stray railgun round, like a ship ship based railgun round, just happens to go through the room that the party is in and like kills the guy instantly. And it turns out the reason was when they were originally playing the scenario, the character and this this story you were telling me, Kevin. Yeah, the, the, the character. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the 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 player character that was playing that character because he's like. Yeah, it's a character that's kind of important or you think is important because he's like, you know, talking about from the game perspective, like you always have like certain archetypes. Like he fits one of the archetypes like this is going to be a main character and he just gets randomly snuffed out in the middle of a battle. And the reason for that is when they were doing this as a as their custom homebrew RPG system, that guy like got a different job and moved out of the city. So they <laughs> just killed his character off in the campaign and like, all right, this is a good way for us to up the stakes kill his character off and then explain why he's not here anymore and when they went to write the first book they they kept that in and i i think that's i think that's awesome <laughs> although I, I, when you told me that i was like that had to be an awkward conversation afterwards so what happened to my <laughs> yeah. character did he have good adventures 
No. <laughs> he died a, he died in a very, very, very gruesome way. Oh, was it Aww. was it at least like an epic death that made a big difference? No. 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 Not at all. No. It was an accident. It, it was an accident that served to prove the pointlessness of life. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> do uh do, do we need to have a talk? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very much that kind of thing, but it, uh. but it it is the books are very well written. Yeah, I mean, I'd put them on par with any of the better uh, Black Library books. They're 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 good reads. There's a lot of characters, but they usually keep it down to about four or five kind of like POV characters per book, and, and it's very clear like. Like each chapter will begin with the like have the character's name listed, so you know like okay it's happening from this character's point of view, and so you it's easy to track, but it also allows them to have like things going on at like three or four different places and these like three or four different storylines that will all end up inter- intersecting and tying together near the end. Uh, they are, and it does take into effect you know into account the fact that like space travel takes time also although in the tv show i know that's been kind of compressed a little bit because it's boring if you say okay two months later <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> right. yeah you kind of kind but they also the the writers are if if they're not the showrunners they are consult direct consultants to the showrunners yeah so they're definitely involved with the script writing and the show the show production right so, so it's like any changes that are made between the books and the the TV show are being made with the writer's consent and input because they know that the storytelling needs of television are different than that of books yeah but, yeah well like so a lot of people have compared compared it to Game of Thrones uh, mostly because of like the po the POV character stuff you get in the novels and just kind of the the and same style the writers, of like lived-in world, and I think the writers also actually have have worked with George R. R. Martin before, like or like yeah, I, yeah, I think that. they have a relationship with him, but yeah, but like it's it's that very kind of lived-in world um, that game of you know that a, a Song of Ice and Fire does, where it's like this is the world, and we're just going to look at this part of it. You get the feeling in these books and in the TV series that like. No, this is a gigantic galaxy, and there are trillions of life forms doing all sorts of things, and we're just going to follow this one piece. But all of this other stuff is happening in the background um, that that bleeds through and has an impact. It's just really good storytelling. Yeah, and uh, there, there's yeah, and there's lots of politics going on behind the scenes, and characters that have to take in, take into account like the power plays between like the three or four major factions that are going mm-hmm. on. And also, uh, Chirjan, uh, or was it Christian? Christian Vasarala is one of the best characters yeah. ever. Because yeah, and she's she's maybe even better in the TV show. Yeah, because <laughs> if, if you want to have like a uh, Asian Indian diplomat who swears like a sailor, it's so <laughs> she great. is awesome. <laughs> so yeah, I cannot recommend the recommend whether if you like the if you like reading, go for the books. If you want something more visual. Uh, it's all available on Amazon Prime right now. Yeah. So it, from from season one onward, uh, high, very high production quality, uh, and they and they don't shy away from stuff in in the television. Yeah. You know, even though it was on sci-fi, like they don't shy away from the language and and the gore. Although it's not like grotesque, you know. It's but definitely there's one, a couple parts that are kind of grotesque. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I would be careful about watching it with kids, but other than yeah. that, it's it's very good. <laughs> All right, I think that wraps up episode 211. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new topic for us to to debate and talk about. And depending on what comes out, hey, maybe we'll have a start seeing sneak peeks of Saga of the Beast. Yep. Before then, 
And uh, so until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. Good night, good gaming, and maybe there isn't one format to rule them all. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.